Hi, everyone. Thank you all for being at this session. This one is uh, very dear to my heart. Um, my guest for today is uh, currently Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Brescia University in Kentucky. He has his uh, PhD since 2014, which was completed in University of Notre Dame. He specializes in philosophy, theology, theology, metaphysics, and ancient and Hellenistic philosophy. His dissertation called The Logical Problem of the Trinity can be found on his research page, which is absolutely recommendable. Uh, he mainly focuses on the philosophy of the early church fathers and is hoping to show both analytical theology and historical theology can benefit from each other in a deeper engagement with one another. Uh, this man right here in front of me is someone who I've been following for the past couple of months, like say three to four months, and I've been been watching his content and it opened up a particular door, which I never knew I would be so passionate about for like, if it comes to the Trinity, I am very zealous if it comes to the biblical side, but on the historical and philosophical side, I felt it was very much neglected and this man has made it his bread and butter. And the man I have right here right now in front of me is Dr. Bo Branson. So Dr. Branson, thank you so much for uh, being here. Well, thank you for that introduction. I appreciate it. Uh, 100% uh, earned the type of introduction. So uh, what we, I'd like to mention in advance is uh, this particular topic or topics that we're going to address in the couple next coming minutes will be technically really much up there if you are like, uh, young in the faith or not so familiar, it mounts a little bit of gibberish, like plus on pros type in a particular <laughs> name. I hope it will be beneficial for everyone from all from all yeah. the places. But uh, there are like particular sessions which is be, which is be like surface level, and there are particular sessions I would really like to go into the depths. And yeah, Doctor yeah. uh, Branson is uh, yeah one of the best out there in my in my we'll subjective opinion. We'll yeah. Try. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. First off, let me ask you, uh, before we go into details, uh, how are you doing and what are you up to lately and how is your future looking like? Uh, I'm, I'm doing all right. Um, the, the pandemic's made everything weird for everyone, of course, but, but we've been doing okay here. Um, uh, I do have, uh, I have a few writing projects uh, in the works. So um, a couple of them, uh, there's nothing too firm, so I won't uh, maybe comment too much. But um, for those who are interested, I, I do have some things that coming out. I do have a, um, a, a paper that I just uh, sent out that will be uh, published soon that will be um, in a book about Eastern Christian perspectives on philosophy that uh, kind of summarizes a lot of uh, stuff that's in my dissertation and that I've talked about online. So um, might be interesting for some people. And then I'll have a, a book project coming up that's kind of a joint thing with some other people, Trinitarians and non-Trinitarians, um, where we'll be debating some things. So um, so few few things in the works. Yeah, a lot of cliffhangers uh, right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so far. Um, uh, there is the, the one I talked about of the Eastern Christian perspectives on philosophy. That's There's a preprint up on my um, my website of that right now. So if you're yeah. interested in that, it's kind of a summary, like I said, of, of some of the things that I talk about and 
So it's yeah. not totally a cliffhanger. Just no, no, no. Yeah, we can somewhat guess uh, what type of subject you're going to address. But I would really like to know um, the the Bo Branson when he was like a kid and these type of subjects. Like, <laughs> oh, really, what what was like the, yeah. the spark that just made everything go berserk? And why did you delve so deep into these type of huh. subjects? Oh well, um, I don't I mean Bo Branson as a kid um, was a nerd, so that's one thing. Um, but also. Um, uh, I got really interested in the Bible when I was really, really young. So actually, I, I was in a kind of nerdy thing in school where we had to do all these reports and whatever. And uh, interestingly, I mean, I was always a Christian as early as I could remember. But um, when I was about in fifth grade, I had to, um, for some reason, I decided to do this research report thing that we had to do every year on um, uh, on the Bible. And so I got interested in it. I have my Bible out on the playground at school and other kids were playing and be, you know, trying to read through it all. And I, I went through it cover to cover. And then I decided I needed to try to read it in a different translation and use my mom's study Bible. And, uh, and actually eventually I, I kept reading the Bible. And I, by the time I was, I think 14 or 15, I decided I needed to try to learn Hebrew so I could read the, the Old Testament in, in the original. And I, I managed to learn a little bit of Hebrew. I found a place that would teach it. Um, this is before there was, this was before the internet. That's how old I am. So you couldn't just get online and teach yourself Hebrew. So anyway, I learned a little bit, but, um, uh, and, and actually doing that caused me to start rethinking a lot of the, um, beliefs I'd kind of grown up with in a little Southern Baptist church in Oklahoma. Um, and I uh, kind of meandered around. I kind of got interested in Judaism uh, a little bit, Messianic Judaism and just sort of standard Orthodox Judaism. And uh, But I didn't really know anything about church history at all. Um, and then I, one day I, I was uh, in, this was when I was living in Nashville for a little while going to school. And a friend of mine and I were in a bookstore and there was a copy of the Philokalia there and he said, Oh, you know, you, you'd be interested in that. You're interested in the Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism, whatever this is kind of Christian, you know, mysticism stuff or whatever. And I was like, what, what's that? <laughs> so, uh, and I didn't, you know, he was like, Oh, it's monks, you know, from the ancient times or whatever. And I was like, I didn't even know we knew anything about that. I didn't know there was such a thing as church history. So I, I got the Philokalia, which I thought, which was, something that was very interesting to me in terms of this, the spirituality, but it also got me interested in just learning more about the history of Christianity. And, and then I realized there's this whole world of history out there that we knew about that I didn't know anything about growing up. And uh, that pretty quickly led to my conversion to Eastern Orthodoxy in, in, in short order. But that was actually before I, I went to school for philosophy. My, my first degree was in music production which is why I was in Nashville wow. but I decided to go back to school first I wanted to study linguistics because um, I was thinking about translating stuff so I studied Greek and a little bit of Russian and some linguistics but then I eventually switched to um, to philosophy and classics so I kept up with the Greek I didn't really keep up with the Russian unfortunately but um but what, what happened to me, the reason I guess that I'm, I, I'm 
fascinated by the Trinity is in that process, um, of course, any Protestant who becomes Eastern Orthodox has a lot of objections and questions and things, you know, about icons and the saints and angels and all this stuff that were, is this superstitious or whatever. Um, and I, when I kind of, when I was looking into Orthodoxy, I, you know, I had all these objections, but I always felt like what well, made the answers made sense to me. And I was like, oh, I just hadn't thought about it in this way. And anyway, I eventually converted. But one thing that I never, one question I never had was anything about the Trinity because I thought, oh, well, I'm Baptist. I believe in the Trinity and they believe in the Trinity. So that's no problem. Right. Um, but then once I became Orthodox, of course, you know, you walk in a church and the first thing you hear is blessed is the kingdom of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You know, everything is in the name of the Father and the Son and Holy Spirit. You're, it's just very, very sort of in your face, you know. And as a Baptist, we sort of said, well, yeah, we believe in the Trinity, but then we didn't ever really talk about it. Um, so I didn't ever really think about it until I became Orthodox. And I thought, well, now that I'm here, you know, I, I kind of don't really understand how this works. And and they had good answers for everything else. You know, what's what's the you know, how does this Trinity thing work? And I mean, of course, some people just said, well, it's a mystery, you know, don't worry about it or whatever. But um, usually I got that response more from like laymen that didn't really think about it much themselves either. But my priest that that catechized me, you know, at one point he was he just said, you know, if you're really interested in this stuff, um, he said, read Gregory of Nyssa. He has this uh, short work on not three gods and, uh, you know, maybe read John of Damascus, uh, if you, the exact exposition of the Orthodox faith, if you're really interested in that. And, uh, you know, a couple other things from Gregory Nazianzen and St. Basil. So he kind of directed me to the Cappadocians and John of Damascus. And, um, of course I read those and I thought, thought maybe I kind of understood it, but not really totally. And I, you know, I kind of still had all these questions and, um, so it just got me really interested. And so when I, when I eventually went to study philosophy and classics, um, that was just something that was always in the back of my mind was like, how does this, you know, is this something that's relevant to the Trinity um, and to, to trying to understand it? And one thing that I became very aware of pretty quickly at, just as an undergraduate um, was that there's a lot of really precise argumentation going on in the church fathers that just doesn't translate to English very well, or just hasn't been translated to English very well. So one, one thing I did was that you, to get a degree in classics there, which I, mostly I was just studying Greek, but they didn't have a Greek major, but you'd had to do some independent studies in Greek to kind of complete that. And I happened to have a professor that was really cool and wanted to work with me, do an independent study. And so I said, I want to read some of the church fathers in, in Greek. And so she would let me do that and go through, you know, and, and as I as I did, I realized that a lot of the times the English translations just it seems like they didn't understand that there were technical terms being used that were being taken from say the Stoics or Neoplatonists or Aristotle or whatever. And I think uh, I don't really, um, sometimes people paint this picture like, oh, the church fathers were just all sort of Neoplatonists that tried to uh, 
kind of shoehorn the Bible into it or, you know, kind of dress it up in Christian dress or something. And I don't think that's really accurate. I think that they were very eclectic and they used the terminology and the framework that was there from whatever school, Aristotle, the Platonists, the Stoics, whatever, uh, in order to try to be very clear and very precise. And I think, unfortunately, for various reasons that, of course, a lot of stuff just isn't translated from the church fathers and stuff that has been is a lot of times not really, it's not really clear that they're making very precise statements. So anyway, that was just something that was always, um, I was always interested in. And so finally, when I, when I went to grad school, I ended up doing the dissertation on the, the Trinity in, in Gregory of Nyssa. Um, so I don't know, I guess that's the, the short, uh, short and sweet version, not super short, I guess could be shorter, but, um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how I ended up where I, where I did. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's like, uh, Bo Branson in a nutshell over the years. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's my life. In a nutshell. <laughs> now there are very, a lot of questions are rising up. I mean, one quick question, quickly uh, right through it. What type of music were you studying? What type of music were you making? Oh, I, I, I mean, I studied like music production, so like engineering music, but uh, producing? I, I used to do, yeah, yeah. I wanted to produce music, but um, that was, uh, that was another lifetime ago. <laughs> yeah. Same story. There's a very interesting parallel going on. I'm still yeah. a musician, a certain type of sense. I'm also, I also made music since 2008 and went also to uh, a music school when I was yeah. like 17 years old, but that oh. didn't work out well. But it's very interesting, but okay. Yeah. Interesting. Maybe for another session. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what the church fathers say about music. Yes. Yeah. God willing. <laughs> um, so, yeah. The, 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 what I noticed from the church fathers on like, for instance, when you have like the Bible, if mm -hmm. you look at it as, as an, an allegory that I'm making right now, if you look at the Bible as your favorite series on Netflix, and there's all these type of seasons that has a very particular storyline going through it. And then like, for instance, uh, the final season is happening and everything uh, is done, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. But still, there are some certain type of seasons who have like spinoffs, which characters that are going on. It has yeah. somewhat of the same... Um, yeah. uh, chronology in the storyline and you really yeah. if you really know the first series you also know what happens in the second series and right. that's the way I look at patristic for instance like historically yeah, yeah. so th that's the way I look at it when you are, are like bible only which is fine I'm not judging for or against it I don't I don't mm -hmm. care but uh, to look at what happened in the history look at what happened what uh, the, the fathers were wrestling with uh, yeah. One of the one of the questions I already had were like, uh, uh, what were the rivaling philosophies and challenges that the church fathers had to deal with in order to mm -hmm. sufficiently explicate and disambiguate uh, the revealed Christian doctrines, and what influence did it have? So right. we would start off with that one because you already alluded to yeah. it. What would you um, answer? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I I wrote a little. Um, introductory chapter to this little book on philosophy of religion where I kind of talk about that a little bit that um what are so what was what was the exact question what are what are the influences yeah, um, yeah. what were the right these are three questions of one I'm, I'm the type of dude who has like an amalgam of questions and I'm like 
yeah. good luck with yeah. it. Sorry. What were the rivaling philosophies and challenges that the church okay, fathers yeah. had to deal with? Yeah. So, yeah, I think this is a good question. So one thing is, uh, I mean, the, the biggest thing that comes to mind is Platonism or what, what people today call Neoplatonism. But at the time, they didn't call it Neoplatonism. They just thought of it as Platonism. But when you one thing that that is important is when you read the church fathers or ancient philosophy, either one, when people say philosophy in um so like when the church fathers talk about philosophy, sometimes what that means is just Platonism in particular, because uh, th there was kind of, uh, not always. Um, so sometimes it's, it's kind of, um, you know, it really is just the love of wisdom or whatever. Um, so like, you know, St. John of Damascus talks about philosophy in, in kind of positive ways, but but in some cases, people in antiquity just sort of identified philosophy with Platonism because it was kind of the most prominent thing or whatever. And the, the thing to keep in mind, so th this is something I, I, it's kind of a little academic hobby horse of mine to like second to the Trinity is, um, so for, for one thing, there's a lot of philosophical content going on in the church fathers but there's also a lot of spiritual and what we would think of as religious uh, ideology going on in what people think of as ancient philosophy. Um, so like I'm, I'm teaching a class on ancient philosophy right now and we're going through, you know, every now and then I, I point out to my students, like sometimes when Plato even talks about wisdom or philosophy, the love of wisdom, if you look at what he says about it, it, in some cases, maybe looks like what we think of today, just thinking hard about, you know, these deep subjects or whatever. But in some cases, it sounds like this mystical experience, right? So he talks about philosophy being uh, practicing for death because you're separating the soul from the body. And maybe that means I'm just not thinking about my body and I'm really in my head or something. But there are times when it really sounds like he's talking about something like an out-of-body experience, like he literally separating the soul from the body. And he talks about having this vision of the forms and this kind of thing. And so any and certainly Neoplatonists interpreted it that way. So like Plotinus, one of the things he's sort of famous for is that like a handful of, of times, five or six times or something, he says that he reached this state you know where he was he had the soul alone separate from the body and he had this vision and and so forth and i think porphyry says he managed to have that once like uh, once or twice or something so um so you know when you see like in antiquity you'll see the church fathers sometimes bad-mouthing philosophy you also see the philosophers like porphyry wrote a 16 volume work against the Christians, right? So you're saying, man, we don't have it. The whole, unfortunately, we have some quotations because I think St. Cyril like responded to some of it. But, you know, why would Porphyry, this kind of logician and philosopher and student of Plotinus, write a 16 volume work against Christianity if they don't have anything really to do with each other? 
I mean, it doesn't make much sense, right? Like, why not just say, hey, Christians should be smarter or something? I mean, but the, the reason why is because they really weren't, it's not that Christians were anti-intellectual and that intellectuals hated religion or something. It's really that they were competing schools of spiritual thought. So ancient philosophy was, was very much interested in religious sorts of questions and they had their own spirituality that they advocated. And the reason why there was a kind of uh, antipathy between Christianity and quote unquote philosophy is because they really were different religions for all in, intents and purposes. I mean, they were, they were rival schools of thought about what you might think of as sort of a spiritual science was what they were trying to trying to be. And Christians said, well, there's a lot of good here. There's a lot of things that you've, you've said and arguments you've made that are consistent with Christianity that makes sense, but there's a lot that isn't compatible with, with Christianity. And so they, they didn't like that content. So it wasn't that they were sort of anti-intellectual or that the, the people who were intellectual just didn't like religion or something. It was really that they were competitors in the same kind of space. So, so that's the main thing I would say. I mean, Platonism is probably the biggest thing because that was the most popular one, but also, I mean, of course, Stoicism, but uh, you, you do see in the church fathers, um, you, you see, I, I think there's a lot more influence um, from the Stoics than people traditionally have thought. Like a lot of people, like I said, people have this thing where, oh, the church fathers are just Neoplatonists and then whatever. Um, but really, I think there's um, there's a lot that goes unappreciated about so and especially to do with Stoic morality or ethics, um, uh, which which a lot of the church fathers, uh, maybe they didn't like the Stoics metaphysics, but um, I think a lot of the church fathers thought the Stoic ethics was um, had a lot of, of good to it as far as just being kind of detached from worldly things. In my, in my past life, I was a devout Stoic. Not yeah, we're, yeah. 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 I, I was really much into uh, Epicurus, uh, Seneca, yeah. Marcus Aurelius yeah. Yeah. meditations, yeah. of course. So what you're, what you actually just mentioned is very interesting because not necessarily the metaphysical side, but the moral mm -hmm. side. Yeah. That was yeah. something I, I, like all truth is of God, of course, and mm -hmm. that can echo into trains of thought, for instance. And one of the things uh, I hold dear to is, for instance, in Acts 17, when Paul is in Athens yeah. using their doctrines yeah. of uh, Aratus and Epimenides, like if I'm not mistaken, the Stoic philosophers that does, at this time, like yeah. uh, we have in him, we have our being or we indwell what was the verse again? Acts 70, 28. We live and move and have our being. Amen. Yeah. 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 That was a very famous line of the Stoics yeah. of this time. And Paul used it to explicate what Christ was all about. He is like the microcosm in the microcosm, for instance. So yeah, yeah. I, I really do agree with the fact that, uh, very interesting, a, little, a brother of mine uh, who he really wanted to know from you, like, uh, were things like platonism were they useful for the church mm -hmm. fathers could we agree on the fact that it was yeah i mean part? saint basil saint basil has a, a little work called to the youths um uh concern what's the subtitle concerning oh 
something something about pagan literature or secular literature or whatever. Um, but uh, in it, um, I mean, he basically advocates for a kind of eclectic uh, approach to philosophy. He gives a, the metaphor. Uh, he says a, a good Christian is like a bee. And he says, you know, the bee goes around to all the different flowers and just takes what's good, you know, takes the nectar and leaves the rest and, you know, puts it all together and goes back to the hive and, and uses that to make the honey. Right. And he says that what Christians should do, according to St. Basil, is is look at all the different schools of philosophy, look at all all the, you know, worldly wisdom and whatever, and just to be discerning about it, you have to have the discernment to know, you know, there are parts of it that are good and there are parts of it to kind of leave behind and that that's kind of the, the approach that he, that he advocates, which a lot of, um, you know, a lot of church fathers talked about the, the plundering of Egypt in the, uh, in the Exodus and, and kind of compared that to, uh, Christians' relationship to pagan philosophy. The, the idea was, you know, the Israelites took, you know, they, they just sort of took the, the good stuff from the Egyptians. Um, you know, they left the, <laughs> the bad stuff behind in, in Egypt, but a lot of this valuable treasure, you know, they took with them. Um, you know, Moses in Acts is said to have been learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and so forth. So, um, a lot of church fathers have said that, you know, that that should be our attitude. And of course, I mean, saying that, you know, if you're sort of young in the faith or you don't really know doctrine very well or whatever, I mean, there, of course, there's a danger of, of being maybe influenced in a, in a bad way or something. If you, if you don't know, if you can't discern yet, you know, what's kind of the good and what's the bad, but I mean, that's, you know, you have, you have to grow in the faith. You have to be plugged in somewhere where you've got a good, yeah. you know, your priest or your yeah. bishop. Or yeah. Everybody, everybody needs to have a particular starting point, yeah. but our, our point of contention is uh, in a nutshell said spiritual prelist. Like that's mm -hmm. the, that's the, the place where uh, heresies come out of historically speaking. When, for instance, yeah. I hear someone say, Oh, the Trinity is pagan, and Tertullian made uh, introduced the Trinity, but not knowing the fact that two thirds of what Tertullian was writing was anti-pagan polemics. Yeah, so, like when when you have when you hear those type of arguments, like surface level arguments, it just somewhat hurts. It's a blessing to to read the Church Fathers, but in some way, it's also cursed. Like <laughs> it just hurts. Like oh, if you just knew. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's one thing that's also kind of become a pet peeve of mine after learning a little bit about church history, because I grew up in an environment that very much was, um, I mean, they didn't know anything about Eastern Orthodoxy, but they knew about Roman Catholicism, and they knew that it was supposed to be evil. So, um, you know, it was, it, they, it was all a lot they of... They know just enough how to do polemics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, so... Um, yeah, I, I grew up with a lot of misinformation about, you know, Constantine and uh, whatever, you know, the church fathers being pagans or whatever it was. Um, and yeah, so it's it's something I'm kind of sensitive to now, too, is that there's just a lot of misinformation out there. A lot of things that just get asserted with no evidence to back it up and, and people just kind of let it, you know, 
let it slide. And it's like, what's, what's actually the evidence for the claim that you're, you're making. And yeah. a lot of times it's nothing. In, in this day and age there with so much information at hand, like mm-hmm. the biblical, the biblical illiteracy is just scary. And it, have, it is have, odd. It's, it's funny. You would think that get, there more information out there would be better and people would get, be, be more literate about things, but um yeah, it hasn't always happened. <laughs> no. so. But it, it, it's it's also a skill to in this day and age, mm. it, like every, like every good thing has also its bad sides. Is my belief that uh, the 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 fact that there's so much distraction, like it's a skill in and of itself, such a tremendous skill to have your attention to grab yeah. a book and just read it and then yeah. speak about it. Like when yeah. you are going to talk for one minute about a particular subject, you at least need to have like one hour of material like already stored up in your subconscious. Yeah. Like, or, or else you are a student of knowledge or you're a slave of emotion. And a lot of people are in their emotional side. And the best of both worlds is, of course, like being passionate and also knowing mm-hmm. your stuff. But that's something I, I really want you uh demolish like nominalism yeah i'm a christian mm. but nah. like I, i'm a hypocrite r- right right at the moment i'm saying this i need to learn a lot more myself but uh that's something that yeah really needs to be to yeah really needs to be touched on yeah, mm. yeah i think that's right i think you're right too it's it's become uh because of the internet and and how information is so easily and quickly available people don't take the time to dig into something and really research it in, in a lot. Like they assume that it's just going to pop up on a Google search. I mean, I have this problem with my students, right? Like they try to write a paper and it's like, if it doesn't just pop up on the first page of a Google search, they don't, they don't see it. So there's a lot of really in-depth scholarship and, and, you know, primary sources that it's hard to access, but people don't think that. So they just kind of, have this yeah. shallow approach to things but anyway yeah then i would like to go into uh what i consider the meaty stuff yeah <laughs> like yeah. um the first question i have in store right for you right now is uh, mm-hmm. if it comes to the trinity mm-hmm. there is this uh question that uh, the father and the son and the holy spirit that they are god but also the attributes of the the, the name of aseity is given to them Mm-hmm. Um, so is a Seidi an intrinsic or extrinsic property? Right. So I would say it's strictly speaking, it's an extrinsic property. Um, and for if, depending on your audience, maybe we should define uh, intrinsic and extrinsic. So um, the idea, uh, one way to think about this is, of course, um, uh, if I'm if I have the property of being oh let's say on a chair right that's uh, that's a relation I bear to the chair uh, and of course there has to be a chair right I can't just have the property of being a, on a chair in myself right I have I, I have that property only because there's this other thing there um, if it didn't exist I couldn't be on a chair but of course I can bear relations to myself. I'm, I can think about myself and that's a relation that I don't need other things for. So it's uh, to, we, we make this distinction between intrinsic and extrinsic properties because the relation, the, the distinction between a relation and a 
you know, non-relational property isn't quite the distinction that we always want to make. So the idea is that a, a property or a relation is intrinsic when it only depends on you. Um, nothing else has to exist, regardless of what else exists or doesn't exist, you would have that property. So like a shape, for example, is intrinsic, the property of being square, right? Something would be square regardless of whether anything else exists or not, or how anything else is arranged. It's just, it's intrinsic to, to that thing. But the property of being like a brother, well, that's extrinsic to you because it, it requires, depends on what else exists, right? Or the property of being a father depends on what else exists. The property of being a son depends on what else exists. And so when we talk about aseity, the idea of aseity is that you aren't caused by anything. Whereas, uh, I don't know if there's a single term for it, but in Latin, the phrase ab alio means from another. So ase literally means from yourself and ab alio is from another. Um, sometimes people think, well, the property of being ase is, is intrinsic because, hey, I'm just you know, I only depend on myself for my existence. I don't, uh, so if you're God, right, you only depend for yourself on your existence. You don't depend on anything else. But the problem is that aseity is the negation of ab aliati or whatever it would be, right? Being ab alio, being from another. And being from another is clearly an extrinsic property. Uh, so it kind of depends on what you mean. And I, I think that, Probably what's going on, probably some of the reason that some people think of aseity as intrinsic is they're not actually thinking about the question whether you have a cause or don't, because the fact that you don't have a cause also depends on whether something else exists, right, and is causing you. It's kind of like the property of not having a brother, right? The, having a brother is an extrinsic property. Well, not having a brother is also an extrinsic property because it has to do with whether something else exists or not. In general, you know, the, the negation of an extrinsic property is also extrinsic. The negation of an intrinsic property is also intrinsic. That, you know, a property and its negation are both either intrinsic matters or extrinsic matters. But I think that probably the people who think that aseity is intrinsic are really not thinking about the question of having a cause they're probably thinking about something like the, the question whether something um, like is in some sense incomplete or it, so it requires a cause to sort of make it, you know, fully complete in some sense. Um, and that really would be kind of a different question. Um, so, um, so I'm, uh, you know, I'm incomplete in a sense. I'm imperfect in a sense that I depend on God for existence, right? I have to be caused and held in existence by God. Um, so that's both an intrinsic and an extrinsic property. I intrinsically, I'm, I'm a certain sort of thing. I'm a contingent being that is just inherently imperfect and requires a cause. And then so the fact that I exist means you can infer that I also have this extrinsic property that I, I am caused to exist by God. 
right? But those are two different things. I'm a certain kind of thing that requires a relation. And then there is this relation to this other thing. Um, so I think that some people are just thinking, well, God is the kind of thing that doesn't require a cause, right? Uh, and doesn't have a cause. And then if you say, well, but the Son and the Holy Spirit do have a cause in the Father, then they think, oh, well, that means that they're contingent beings or they are imperfect and they require a cause or something. But that doesn't follow logically. So it doesn't follow from the fact that you have a cause necessarily that you require a cause. So let me, uh, and that might sound kind of confusing because if you're thinking about like physical cause and effect relations, um, you might think, well, yeah, you know, if something has a cause, it means it didn't exist before. And then it, you know, it depended on the cause. But um, when we're talking about the causation in, in the sense that the father is the cause of the son and the spirit, it's not like a physical thing, right? It's not that God isn't a, a physical object and the son and the spirit aren't, you know, things that, that he caused to come into existence at some time. We're talking about this timeless, eternal kind of sense of causation. So um, let me, so here, here's maybe an analogy. Um, oh, I'm trying to think of a good, um, um, a, a good, maybe simpler analogy. I, the, the nerdy things I, I come up with, like have to do with logic. So, Oh, pl please, whatever maybe, the Lord puts on your heart, just. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, this is this, so this is nerdy, but um, in there's different sort of kinds or levels of logic. So we have propositional logic. There's first order predicate logic and second order predicate logic. Um, without going into super detail, just put it this way. Propositional logic is, um, uh, it's just a lot simpler. It's a very simple form of logic. Because of that, it's, it's so simplified, you can't state like the basic axioms of arithmetic in it. Because um, it's just too, uh, too oversimplified, sort of. So it doesn't have a lot of expressive power. But it's also very well behaved. So like you can program a computer. So any, any argument that you can put into propositional logic, you can make a computer program. It will always figure it out and tell you if it's valid. It'll figure out if something's logically consistent or not. No problem. Um, but it doesn't have a lot of expressive power. Once you separate out the structure of subjects and predicates and you get to this kind of more complicated level of logic, you can express a lot more things. And so you can start to talk about mathematical sorts of, um, sorts of statements and things. Um, but you lose that property of what they call decidability. So now it becomes something where you can construct proofs, but there's no like algorithmic way to do it. There's no just like recipe that you can give a computer to do it. So it kind of takes an element of human creativity and ingenuity to kind of look at a formula and say, oh, I can figure out that I can prove it in a certain way, so forth. And then when you get to second order logic, you have even more expressive power 
uh, and you lose kind of even more control over the whole system. Um, and, and why is that? So, so that's just kind of some abstract, interesting stuff about logic. If you asked me, why is that? If, if a student asked me like, well, why is it that uh, first order logic is not decidable? It's, it's uh, sound, it's complete, there's proofs for things, but it, you don't just have this algorithmic sort of way to figure things out. Well, I would say the reason is because it has quantifiers and you can have quantifiers overlapping in certain ways that no matter what algorithm, what algorithm you program a computer with, it's going to get stuck in a loop when it starts calculating these quantifiers. So if you kind of intuitively know about, you know, computers sometimes get stuck in these loops or whatever. Um, and if you change the algorithm, then there's just going to be a different way I can put some quantifiers together that'll put it into a loop. No matter what way you try to get the computer to approach it, I can come up with some sequence of quantifiers that'll just throw it into an infinite loop and it'll never finish. And I can always, and so that's why, that's the reason, the answer to the question why. That's not, um, so that's, that's the answer to the question why, but it's not cause and effect in, the, in a physical sense, right? It's not like there was a gotcha. moment of, of time where you had a bunch of quantifiers or something, and then like two seconds later, uh, predicate logic became undecidable. Right. That's it's there's no temporal gap, but there's a logical order there. Right. There's a the reason why predicate logic is undecidable is because you have quantifiers that can overlap in certain ways. Um, and same thing, you can think about examples with with, you know, what, why is the Pythagorean theorem true? Well, I could kind of trace it back to these axioms of arithmetic. But again, it's not like there's a moment where. Euclid's axioms are all true. And then a second later, the Pythagorean theorem becomes true. So they're, they're true at exactly the same times, right? Um, and you can say this, that if the axioms of, a, of geometry are true, then the Pythagorean theorem is true. Uh, if the Pythagorean theorem is, you know, uh, if it wasn't true, then those axioms wouldn't be true. I mean, they're, they're both sort of... Um, they necessarily sort of correlate, right? Or maybe um, maybe that's not a good example, but you can, um, anyway, you can certainly find examples where, you know, there are things that are both necessary truths and they both kind of correlate, but there's clearly some kind of order at some level. One is kind of in some sense more basic than the other. Mm. Um, so that's, that's more like the relation between the, the father and the son. And they're, they're both going to be necessarily existent beings, right? So, so they are necessary. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the son and the spirit would, would still be necessarily existent beings. So let's, let me say a little more about that. When we talk about a necessary being versus a contingent being, um, one way, this is just kind of a, a modern day, analytic philosophy sort of way of, of talking, but it's an easy way to, to, it's an easier way to think about issues about necessity and possibility and these kind of questions. So um, people just talk about possible worlds and these are not, you don't have to necessarily take them 
seriously as, you know, entities, uh, you, some people do, some people don't, but just think about, um, different possible scenarios, right? A, a possible world is just basically like a, a way that things could be. So, uh, no matter how the world was set up, no matter what things exist, and no matter what relations you put them in and combinations you put them in, two plus two is always going to equal four. Like that, that statement will always be true no matter what. So we would say two plus two equals four. That is true in all possible worlds, right? So no matter how things are set up, two plus two equals four. Um, whereas I exist only in some possible worlds and not in others, right? So... I could have not been created. So I'm, my existence is contingent. I exist in some possible worlds, but not in other possible worlds. Um, so here's the, the way to think about the, the ne necessary existence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is, you, of course, you take it for granted that God the Father is a necessary being, right? So he exists in all possible worlds, right? I mean, that's just kind of part of that, right? If you if you believe in God in the first place, you probably think God is a necessary being, right? I mean, part of, part of the idea, one reason to believe in God is that you think contingent beings all require a cause, right? They require causes. And if you think it would be weird if that just stretched infinitely far, you know, out yeah. or whatever. <laughs> I mean, that's the one version of the cosmological argument, right? Says you have to have some being that's just necessarily existent. And then it can cause other contingent things to come into existence. If the father's, and I guess I'll have to talk about, talk about what a hypostatic property is, but if, if, um, if the hypostatic property of the father is to beget the son. Um, so in other words, if he has that property in every possible world in which he exists, well, he exists in all the possible worlds, right? And that property is, uh, something he has in every possible world, then the sun is going to exist in every possible world. So again, it's going to be a, a case where they both exist in every possible world and they both exist at every moment of time, but there's just a kind of order to it, right? So there's, there's a sense in which a father, by definition, more or less, right, is prior to a son, so just like the axioms of arithmetic, um, actually, this is another uh, another point that I, I should bring up. The, the idea that, you know, uh, a being can be caused without requiring a cause. Here's a, I just taught um, Bertrand Russell's uh, Problems of Philosophy not too long ago in my in an intro <laughs> um, class. But he, he gives a, a good uh, example that's sort of sort of analogous. It's not cause and effect, but there's, there's a kind of analogy here. He points out that there are propositions that um, are self-evident, so they don't require any proof. Uh, he thinks, you know, there are certain propositions. You almost have to believe there's some Ax axiom axiomatic presuppositions. Yeah, they're axiomatic, right? Yeah, so yeah. he says two plus two equals four is just self-evident. Um, I don't need a proof that two plus two equals four. Nevertheless, you can prove that two plus two equals four from the basic axioms of arithmetic. And those basic axioms of arithmetic are also self-evident. 
but they but they are such you can't prove the axioms of arithmetic. Uh, so the so think about it that way, right? You can't prove the axioms of arithmetic. Those are your starting points. They're your axioms. You don't need to because they're self-evident. So that's okay, right? You don't really need to prove that two plus two equals four either, because really that's also self-evident. But you can. It, you it can. does. Yeah. It does. Uh, it is entailed by the axioms of arithmetic. So you can have two propositions. They're both self-evident. Um, one can't be proven. It has no. There's no. You can't go further back than the axioms. Yeah. You can go further back than two plus two equals four. It's a consequence of the axioms. So one is proven, wow. provable from the other, but neither requires proof, right? And I want to say that's that's there's sort of an analogy there with the the father and the son, like just because so just like just because two plus two equals four can be proven doesn't mean it needs to be proven. It's not the sort of thing that requires evidence. It's self-evident, but it is provable, right? And similarly, the son can have a cause, right? The father can cause the son to exist. That doesn't necessarily mean the son is the kind of thing that requires a cause, right? It just means that he can have a cause and does, which is the okay. father. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can think about, I mean, once you start thinking about it, there are other kinds of analogies too. So, you know, cases where um, there's some sense in which A kind of supports B in some sense, but B doesn't actually require that support. Um, yeah. So like if you imagine the moon, you know, crashing into the earth and the the moon is on top of the earth and maybe I build a house on top of the moon or something, right? So the house is supported by the moon and the moon is supported by the earth. But actually, if you zapped the earth away and it was just the moon, that'd be fine. Right? Mm. So that you take away the moon's support, but the moon doesn't really need support. Um, it, if it crashed into the earth, it would be mm. supported by the earth. And in either case, the house is supported by the moon, um, yeah. but it doesn't re require it, right? Uh, so if you took it, took it away, it would still float in space. Yeah, right? yeah, makes sense. I've watched the session of uh, Orthodox Shahada with uh, Dr. Joshua Sejuare. Yeah, uh, yeah. God willing, hopefully I'll also have him. I've read his, oh, yeah. uh, his dissertation great. on uh, monotheism and yeah, yeah. Uh, something that he very interestingly he said, he said that there's... Um, uh, diachronical eternal generation mm -hmm. there's synchronical eternal generation yeah and yeah. the whole point of synchronicity is that it's the same same time. moment yeah. right. right and the way he grounds his monotheistic explanation it like the model he, he actually mainly uses is literally the word grounding like yeah. the, 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 the yeah. allegory that you just mentioned like the earth and the moon and then on top of that and there's no earth it still just stands so yeah solid points like one of the allegories i for instance use when people say like are uh, the son and the holy spirit spirit contingent i'm automatically saying like yeah they are necessary because like you can't yeah. be a father without the son you can't be a son without the father right. like if i as a single person would say like my wife is coming in 
Like mm -hmm. that doesn't add up. Like I cannot have a wife when I'm single. So <laughs> yeah. these are necessary. Yeah. yeah. Right. And that's exactly, that's part of what people were debating in the fourth century. Yeah. I mean, you can't be a father without having a son. And so one question, um, well, this is what people uh, don't like, I guess, when I talk, talk about this, but but if you look at the, the deposition of Arius, when they, I mean, so St. Athanasius cop, like had the record and copied it in one uh, place. And so you can read exactly what the council of, of presbyters and, and his bishop, you know, that deposed him wrote. And the, the way they were phrasing the question was whether God was always a father um, and whether, or whether he became a father. And basically, um, you know, Arius said that there was a time when the sun didn't exist. And that what's really, really interesting, I think, anyway, is, is in that deposition, they didn't start with his claim that there was a time when the sun didn't exist. They started by saying, according to Arius, there was a time when God was not a father. And the, the issue is, right, is being a father a good thing? Um, and if, and this came up, this comes up again in Gregory Nazianzen and some of the Cappadocians that, um, I mean, so first of all, just think about it from a biblical perspective, right? What's the greatest blessing that God ever gives people in the Bible? What's the blessing he gives to Abraham? Abraham didn't have a son, right? He didn't have any children. And, and God says, I will make you a, the father of many nations, right? So I'm, I'll make you this exalted father. Changed his name from Abram to Abraham, meaning, right? And there's all these stories, you know, of, of people who were childless and they prayed and prayed and prayed. And they, the big, you know, big reward that God has for them is you'll have a, a son, you know, you'll, you'll be a father, you'll be a mother. And so if you think that, uh, you know, fatherhood's a good thing, and also if you think that the son of God is good, <laughs> right, do you think there's ever a time when God was without every blessing and every good thing, right? Um, do you think that God became better off? And this is a dilemma. This is a way Gregory Nazianzen at one point puts the dilemma for Arians. He says, look, if, if having, uh, if, if the father having this divine son is a good thing, then, you know, either if you say the son didn't always exist, um, I mean, look, either you tell me that the father kind of improved over time, right? He got, he, he became better off. I mean, not that he got better, but he, his situation got better. So he wasn't as blessed initially as he could have been, but then he, you know, things got better. For he fulfilled God. his potential of blessedness. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or you tell me that um, the existence of the son of God is not good. Right, that it's not any better, like it's just sort of neutral. It's neither, you know, better nor worse. Um, but then, I mean, how do you how, how do you worship Christ um, if you think that he's neither good nor bad? 
you know, his, his existence is just kind of an, an indifferent. It's a matter of indifference in the universe. Like whether the son of God exists or not, wouldn't, wouldn't change anything for the better. Um, yeah. That, just, that, that doesn't sound right, right. That doesn't, that really doesn't as yeah. unbiblical as it possibly gets. But yeah. thank you for coming to this point because I can now segue into yeah, yeah. like um, one of my one of the dearest doctrines that there are outside of the Trinity is this theosis. The like, yeah, yeah. That's uh, yeah. like Second uh, Peter one verse four, First John three verse two, John seventeen eleven, uh, John one twelve, for instance. All of them speak of which we shall partake in the divine nature that we shall um, become yeah. sons of God. And yeah. the, the, we have like the father, the filiation belongs to the son. So mm-hmm. he is the fili, a nomine patri, a fili, a spiritu sancti. Yeah. The filiation belongs to the son, the spiration belongs to the spirit. But particularly mm-hmm. one of the things the book ma- mentions is the familiarization of us uh, by Christ to the Father. Like we are one with mm-hmm. Christ in a certain sense, and Christ is one mm-hmm. with the Father in another sense, but we are not one with the Father. And Christ right. is like the bridge towards Him. And so, like the Trinity also mm-hmm. has a functional side, soteriologically speaking, is my is my conviction. And so yeah, my question yeah. is: how does the Trinity help us attain theosis, soteriologically speaking, through synergy? participation and reciprocity and what shall and what does it mean that we shall become adopted as sons of god yeah oh man there's a lot there's a lot going on there um mm-hmm. well so um i guess my view on the the sons of god thing i don't know if you ever listened to the lord of spirits podcast on ancient faith radio no mm-hmm. um it's good i highly highly recommend it they they talk a lot about this but you know, there's a, um, and this shows up, by the way, I mean, um, um, still in the fourth century. So St. Basil talks about this. I think Eusebius of Caesarea talks about it at 1.2, but the, the idea in, um, well, so in the Old Testament, right, there's this kind of class of, of angelic beings called the sons of God, right? Um, <clears throat> sons, plural. So, in Genesis six, there's a um, story about the the sons of God, you know, came and had children with the daughters of men, and that was what created this race of giants and so forth. And um, and there's in you know in some stuff like the the Book of Enoch and the Book of Jubilees and some other kind of non non canonical, depending on your tradition, um, uh, but. Uh, in there, you know, there's more talk about what, what happened here, you know, this, this kind of fall of these angelic beings. And they pop up again in the book of Job, where there's a day where the sons of God kind of, you know, go in front of Yahweh, and then he talks to Satan about Job and so forth. Um, and there's not a whole lot said explicitly in the Bible about them, but it's clear that there's this group of angelic beings that are sort of high up in the hierarchy uh, the, the kind of angelic hierarchy and that they fell. Right. And then in the gospel of John in particular, right. It says as many as believed in him, he gave power to become sons of God. Uh, and Paul later says, you know, we will judge angels. 
Um, and in the book of Revelation, there's a lot of symbolism about this too. The 24 thrones, a lot of people think, I mean, it's kind of obvious, like, well, there's 12, you know, there are 12 patriarchs and there's 12 disciples. So add them up and that's the 24 thrones. But also in like in Canaanite uh, mythology, there were 72 sons of God. And in the book of Revelation, it sounds like one third of the angels fall, which is yeah. 24, right? And that so is a Revelation 12 verse 4, if I recall correctly, that yeah. by his tail, one third of the sons of God. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So there's a lot of, a lot of symbols, but actually in, in Deuteronomy 32, uh, there's the, when it says uh, the most high divided man and he set their boundaries according to the number of the sons of God um, in the Masoretic and the Septuagint there's kind of different translations of it but uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls version that most people think is original says according to the number of the sons of God and if you um, if you look back at the it says he, he divided the nations according to that number if you go back in Genesis and look at the table of nations, uh, depending on the version you're looking at, there's 70 or 72 or 75 or whatever, depending on the, um, the translation and the version you're looking at. But anyway, point being, it looks like that's the, the idea that they're talking about that kind of uh, view that was current at the time. So anyway, uh, what does it mean? You know, what, what's theosis kind of amount to? Well, so, I mean, I don't think that those uh, angelic beings are supposed to have the same nature as the persons of the Trinity. Um, uh, and I don't think that's the, the patristic view. Uh, and I don't think that's the view going on in, in the Bible itself, really. But, but they are this, obviously, they seem to be created beings, but sort of high up in the, in the hierarchy. And it sounds like what, you know, Paul is saying and others is that, you know, there has to be a replacement for them and that the saints will replace them. Mm. Right. Interesting. And we, hence we will judge angels, right. Because those, uh, uh, actually the, you know, the, the verse, uh, God stood in the congregation of the gods and in the midst of them, he judges the gods. Um, it's literally the congregation is literally the synagogue of, of the gods. Um, and Irenaeus, uh, I think it's Irenaeus that interprets this way that set, uh, so God there is Christ um, uh, stood in the congregation of the gods is the church. And uh, so that that's the synagogue of the gods is so uh, like Jesus says, right, that quotes the verse, I've said, ye are gods, all of you sons of the most high, right? Um, so that, anyway, that verse he interprets as Christ stands in the church, the synagogue of the gods, and in their midst, he judges the gods, meaning the sons of God that fell, right? So those are the gods that, uh, where he says, let the gods who have not created the heavens and the earth perish, and I have said, ye are gods, all of you sons of the most high, yet ye shall die like men and fall like one of the princes, right? So it sounds like there's this class of beings that are sometimes called gods in the Bible and sometimes called sons of God. Uh, and later people, I think, become uncomfortable with that language. So they just call them angels. Um, 
but they messed up somehow (laughs) and they're they're getting kicked out and they have to be replaced um so i sort of describe it to people this way sometimes i say like there's there's job openings in heaven right there are are job openings that have to be you know has to be filled up right and so um uh i so when we talk about you know partaking of the divine nature um i mean that doesn't that's i think not intended to mean and this is not the way that the church fathers would interpret it not meaning like the divine essence the usia right so we can't um uh we can't be the kind of thing um in our essence that god is but could could you in a particular way say that we are won't be gods with a capital g but with a small g that we won't be on yeah i mean yeah yeah um if if what that means a a, a way that a a way that the some of the church fathers put it and i think this is helpful is um suppose you've got a fire right and the fire by nature gives off light and heat right that's just part of its nature suppose i have a steel sword right and it, it doesn't give off light and heat by nature but suppose I put that sword in the fire for long enough, and I leave it there for long enough, right? And it takes on the energy of the fire. It takes on the light and the heat. So eventually, if I pull the sword out of the fire, it does give off light and heat, right? If it's a white hot, you know, uh, sword that was in the in the fire. Um, now that'll go away. That'll fade away eventually because it's it doesn't have that energy by nature. But being in the fire, it can it can take on the energies of the fire that the the fire has by nature. It has by participation in the fire. So what they will say is, look, the the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have the divine energies by nature. So they have by nature. Uh, immortality, eternality, necessary existence, uh, omniscience, omnipotence—you know, you you name it. Uh, we, by being in the right relationship to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, can take on many of those energies. Um, maybe not all of them, or maybe not to an infinite degree, like they have, or whatever. But to varying degrees, we can participate in those energies so when peter says we will become partakers of the divine nature you have to keep in mind the word nature or phusis in in greek um we we a lot of times just think of the nature as meaning like a definition or like a set of essential properties and that's not really what it means in in greek right so in greek the idea of a phusis is kind of a um, I mean, the, the way Aristotle and the way John of Damascus puts it is it's a, a principle of, uh, it's a source of motion or source of activities. Uh, and Aristotle identifies the source of a thing's activities as its essence, as its kind essence. 
Um, but he kind of argues for that. So, I mean, there were other people, pre-Socratic philosophers, who thought that the nature was actually the matter of a thing uh, rather than its form. And, you know, or is it the composite? And, and actually, for some things, Aristotle even thinks that it is the matter uh, that's the nature. But in, in living organisms, it's the, the essence that's the nature. But the idea is that the nature is whatever is kind of this source of activities, Right. And so when you say we'll participate in his nature in that particular context, it doesn't mean that we will be, you know, we'll have the divine essence. It means we'll participate in the activities. Right. So the idea of the what we would today call the energies. So the energies are kind of the idea of energies is, is very intimately tied up with the idea of a nature in, in Greek thought. So. Um, and, you know, if you think about it, um, it, it makes sense that, um, the, you know, these, these angelic beings that were at this kind of high level, right. They would be participating in the divine energies, um, but having fallen, they, they don't, but we replace them and we will. So we will kind of occupy that spot in, in the hierarchy or, God yeah. willing, you, you Occ will. Occupy, I, I which was, <laughs> occupy which was already given to us. Many people think of the of mm -hmm. original sin, but it actually was original righteousness. So yeah. the, whole, the yeah. whole thing, the whole Bible from the first two chapters of Genesis and the last two chapters of Revelation is all a redemption story. So like getting back yeah. to where we already were. And yeah. when, when I, for instance, when I hear... Muslims or, uh, or Christians who are not so familiar. And when I hear them contend for, yeah, John 10, 34, Christ says, you are sons of God. And he, Psalm 82, 6, and uh, the, the Evangelion uh, was now Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, was Christ, was the Evangelion. Theosis is the Evangelion. Theosis is right, the good yeah, news. Yeah. That's the whole that that's just it yeah. that's uh, how could you if you can be if you don't get excited about this and i don't know what will yeah like honestly like when i hear people like content with this stuff like son of god but yeah but son of god is down in the hierarchy and he's also got sons of god sons of god sons of god and i'm like dude theosis i'm like trying to jam and like why don't you understand yeah. that the answer to all your questions is this doctrine and yeah. what i yeah what for instance in this book if I would like spit through it, there are so many, so many places where I'm putting like a heart in it because yeah. you somehow sense the, the, the love of God for us and that he, yeah. Uh, yeah. He, he, he let us partake in his nature. When we say like God is perfect, absolutely. But is he a perfectionist in a sense that he discriminates us? If that would be the case, then it would, first off, he wouldn't be with the downtrodden. He wouldn't be with the prostitutes. It wouldn't right. be with the lowest yeah. of the lowest. Like he knows we are imperfect, yeah. Yeah. but he makes us a way for us. And yeah, th th there are so many ways we could go through this. And yeah. one thing I would really would like to read right now is yeah. John 17, 11, yeah. uh, which has, um, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, if that, if that doesn't make you shiver in the context of the Osis, then I don't know what will. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's a, it's a, um, a mystery on some people's views, like how, how you could be one in the way that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one if, um, if that's not to do with participating in the divine energies. Because we're not going to have the same, you know, we're not going to be uh, uh, of the same essence as the persons of the Trinity. Uh, and we're not, you know, we're not going to be like, you have a question about perichoresis, I think, that you said, you know, like, we're, we're not going to be perichoretically indwelling yeah. each other. Like that. So, like, in what way can we accept to, um, to be, you know, participating in the same divine energies? Um, yeah. yeah, we, we could. Uh, whole Another thing I'll say to you, sure. a, a lot of, uh, I mean, part of what raised, you know, these questions about the Trinity in the fourth century was protecting this doctrine of theosis. So, um, you know, suppose that, um, suppose that Christ is just a creature. Um, he's just maybe another one of these sons of God. So he's a high up there angelic being or something, but, um, how is he mediating the divine energies to us? Um, if he doesn't have those divine energies by nature, right? Like, so, I mean, if he, I mean, you know what I mean? Like it, it, it's just kind of like, well, so we can, (laughs) you know, one, so one view, right. Is, is he, not only does the father sort of, you know, communicate the divine energies to Christ, but he communicates the whole essence, like God, like the Christ has the divine nature itself. Um, and he doesn't commute, and then Christ doesn't communicate the divine nature to us, but he communicates the divine energies to us. So that picture makes sense, right? I can, I can understand that. But if, if you don't have a mediatorial role that's kind of set up in that way, right? If it's just like Christ is just another creature, so then he just participates in the divine energies himself and then sort of passes it along to us or something. Well, then why don't we just participate directly in yeah. that, right? What do you need Christ there for? Like, what is he, what is he even doing, right? Yeah. If, if yeah. a creature can just sort of directly get the divine energies from the father but not the divine essence then you don't really need a mediator right it's yeah, just yeah. christ sort of becomes what, what was then the whole purpose of christ dying on the cross first since yeah then? yeah i mean it just it doesn't seem mm-hmm. yes, like what's, like, what's going on so. one of the one of the popular dictums of for instance the arianist show for witnesses for instance is that mm-hmm. That Christ was one of us for all of us. Like he was like he was the lamp, he was the scapegoat. But mm. one thing that gets neglected very much is Psalm 49, 7 to 9, and verse 15, which mainly says that man of himself cannot repay. Like when you live perfectly yeah. under the law, you can somewhat repay yourself, but you by definitely cannot pay for all the right. sins that there are. Only God can. But wait, right. what happens right now? This is like a great moment to segue into the next question. Is 
do uh, the three persons mm-hmm. uh, engage in one activity? For instance, when we were just mentioned about uh, how a creature yeah. could, like, for instance, save us of our sins. We have like Mark 2 for 7, Christ forgives your sins, Matthew 12, 31. The Holy Spirit forgives his sins and the Father forgives his sins. And would we say like Christ died for us on the cross so that uh, he would be our advocate at the Father. So does the Father forgive us or does the Son forgive mm-hmm. us? Does the Holy Spirit forgive right, us? Right. Or do they participate in one activity? And for this, right. that same amalgam of question for like, do the Father and Son Holy Spirit participate in one activity of called the creation? Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that actually, so that paper I mentioned um uh, it, the, the name of the paper is uh, Gregory of Nyssa on the Individuation of Actions and Events. Um, and uh, that's up on my website. If you go to the research section or whatever, um, I have, a like I said, a preprint of it up there. Um, and in that paper, I'm trying to kind of talk to analytic philosophers about nerdy stuff, about individuating events and actions and things. But um, but it does tie in into all this. So the way Gregory Nyssa talks about it, I mean, he, he says there's one actual act that gets performed. So um, let's distinguish because language is a little bit ambiguous here. So sometimes when we talk about an action, we mean like a kind of action, like drinking or something, right? And it's really just... Etymology is... Uh... Yeah, the, the etymological, uh, which actually say evolution of language over time mm-hmm. is also uh, um, something to study upon very rigorously yeah. in order to know what's they going can... on entirely. So, yeah, that's yeah. something also we need to keep in mind, of course. Like yeah, when, no, when, when we, for instance, here in Holland, we have like bank and we have bank. Mm-hmm. We have like the institute where you put your money in there and there's this couch or we plow ourselves mm-hmm. every evening when we come home from work, for instance. So like oh, same word, but the same thing. Yeah. Different things. So uh, yeah. if it comes to this type of things, it just, we are bound to fall in this, t- this type of uh, exact word, equivocation, uh, pitfalls and these type yeah. of things. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's, that's right. So, uh, so in this case, um, uh you know, sometimes we talk about an action, we really mean a kind of action. Sometimes we're talking about like a particular, you know, datable and locatable like thing that happens. So yes, if yes. I talk about an action, like drinking is a kind of action, I, I say like, you know, right at this particular moment of time, there we go. So there's two, in some sense, uh, we just did the same action, the same type of action, which is drinking. But in some sense, there were two different events going on right one over there and one over here so um so i'll talk about a a type of action or action type versus a token action um, or an an action token meaning the particular one so so you and i if we wanted to engage in the same token action i mean we we really couldn't do that literally speaking right because you you couldn't be drinking the same drink of water that I'm drinking at the same time, right? Um, Because we can't be in the same place at the same time because we're physical beings. We can't occupy the same space at the same time. Um, The best that you and I could do would be like, there's projects we could split up into like smaller actions and, 
you do one and I do one, right? Uh, but really, that's what we would be doing. We'd be kind of breaking up into smaller pieces. What Gregory of Nyssa says is that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do literally the same token action because they are not limited by time and space in the way that we are, the way that all creatures are, right? So like I said, you and I can't be in the same place at the same time, but the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can, right? They can be in the same place at the same time, and they can be acting in the same place at the same time and literally doing the same thing. And that's what he says happens with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So uh, as far as their energies, uh, odd extra is the Latin term. So out to the outside, meaning so when they're acting on the created world outside of the Trinity, they're extra one. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in the Latin tradition, they talk about the inseparable operations, odd extra, uh, in, in Greek, a lot of times people call it synergy, meaning they, they act together. Um, which by the way, is actually something that shows up all over the new Testament, like all over the new Testament. But, uh, in like English translations, at least it doesn't, it's just kind of invisible because they'll just translate it different ways at different times. They'll translate like co-workers or working together, or they'll just say so-and-so worked with me or something, but it's this technical sort of term synergy that comes up all the time. Um, Paul describes Apollos and other people as his synergizers, my They'll translate like co-workers, but it's the people that are synergizing with me. The end of the gospel of, I think it's the gospel of Mark that, you know, the apostles go out doing all these miracles and it says the Lord, they'll translate in English, like the Lord working with them, but it says the Lord synergizing with them. Like he's there in that activity. So when they're doing miracles, it's Christ there doing the miracle at the same time. And notice an interesting thing, right? You and I can't share a token action because of being divided by time and space, but the persons of the Trinity can share token actions with each other. They could also share token actions with you or with me, right? So if Elijah or Elisha, you know, raises someone from the dead, the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son are raising him from the dead, right? They're all, they can all be said to be raising from the dead, but they're all participating in that action. And so one way that you and I can uh, synergize and we can participate in things together is through like liturgical acts and things where we are participating in this uh, kind of heavenly act of worship, right? So there's an event, there's kind of a, a heavenly event that's happening, right? And I'm participating in it and you're participating in it, right? Um, so anyway, that, that's uh, uh, something to, to think about. But one of the things that, that Gregory does say too, though, is that he says every energy that the Trinity performs originates in the Father, and it is performed by the Son and then perfected by the Holy Spirit. So he does say that there's this kind of order to them. So one, one way to think about that, an analogy that might help is like, I, my wife and I bought this house not too long ago. Um, it's been a little while now, but. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> um, 
but suppose, um, uh, and, and actually when, when I was, I, so I was at the closing with my realtor, but at some point they asked, um, uh, where's the buyer? And someone pointed to my realtor um, because they didn't know who I was, but they knew the realtors they were familiar with. And they said, she's the buyer, right? Uh, and sometimes, I mean, I've had cases before where, you know, I couldn't be there. Um, you know, I was living in a different country or something. So like, I just gave my realtor the power of attorney so they could sign all the documents, right? So I just signed a document saying, I'm giving, uh, I hereby give so-and-so, you know, this limited power of attorney that they can do X, Y, Z on my behalf. So then when, when the realtor goes to the closing and the realtor signs the document, right, that is my buying the house or my selling the house. So if I, you know, if I bought a house and, you know, signed a mortgage and all this stuff and I stopped paying my mortgage and, and went to court and told the judge like, well, I didn't sign those documents that this realtor signed it. The judge would say that that doesn't count, right? That that is you sign that effectively you did sign the documents because when your realtor signs it on your behalf, I mean that is your purchasing the house or your selling the house, right? So that one token, right? There's only one person who physically had a pen and physically put it on paper, right? So there's one event, but the realtors signing it right? That event is my act of purchasing the house, right? Because it, it originates with me in the sense it's, it's my power, it's my authority, right? But I'm giving that power to the realtor, right? To act on my behalf. So, um, you know, who, um, who bought the house or who did the, the, real estate deal was it me or was it the realtor the answer is yes it was but it but there's not two buyers of the house there's only one buyer and that's me right so i can i mean interestingly and think I mean, think about the way that we use language in cases like this like we would say you can describe me by saying um i'm the buyer of the house or i bought the house Right. And you could describe the realtor by saying this realtor is the buyer. Just like at the closing, they said, who's the buyer? She's she's the buyer. She bought the house because she signed the document. Right. She did did the deal. Uh, but you wouldn't say there's more than one buyer of the house. You would just say there's one buyer. And if you wanted to, if you asked sort of who is the buyer, you would say, well, me. Right the person who gave the authority to, to do it. But that doesn't exclude the, the realtor from being called the buyer or the person who did the deal or, or whatever you want to say. That kind of ties into this other question that you, you had sent me that, uh, you know, wh whether we call Christ God in a nominative or predicative sort of sense. So that's, that's kind of the, the way it works. I mean, you can, um, there's no, first of all, I should say this, there's no like, um, 
this isn't like a superstition about how you should use, you know, you can't say something or another. I mean, of course, you can say whatever you you want. Of course, we call Christ God all the time. But uh, for for Gregory, anyway, the the reason that Gregory of Nyssa, at least, calls Christ God is not so much because of his nature as because of the the energies, because he thinks that the word God doesn't express a particular nature, which is why you get other gods talked about in the Bible, right? You have the gods who did not create the heavens and the earth, so forth. And that's something Gregory of Nyssa points out as he says, there's all sorts of talk in the Bible about gods that don't have the divine nature. Mm. So he says, when the Bible is calling people gods, it's not saying they have a particular nature. They have the divine essence because even the demons, right? The gods of the Gentiles are demons. And so Gregory says, look, even demons can be called gods, but, but they don't have the divine nature. That's for sure. Right? If, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, Christ even called the, the, the devil a god. So they are. Does he? Oh, or the, um, I'll have to look that up. Yeah. Um, or Paul <laughs> talks about the God of this world and, that sort of thing. So yeah, Ephesians 2, to uh, the prince of the power of the air, for instance. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily a god, but yeah, th- th- there we but have. There are, like, but point being, I mean, there are yeah. gods in the, but God stands in the congregation of the gods and being in the midst of them, he judges the gods. Uh, Gregory Nyssa mentions like the witch of Endor when uh, Saul wanted her to bring Samuel up out of Sheol to talk to him. And, and she says she saw gods coming up out of the earth. Um, or the Bible says, actually, she called God's coming up out of the earth. Uh, Balaam says that he, you know, the Bible says he got um, inspiration from gods and so forth. So point being, I mean, there's all kinds of entities being called gods in the Old Testament um, and in the New Testament where Christ quotes that, you know, I've said you're all gods, sons of the most high. But Clearly, these are not beings that have the divine nature. So he says that's not what the word God means in the Bible. Instead, it's it's expressing a kind of activity, a particular kind of activity. And he's not super <clears throat> dogmatic about what that is, but he just says it must be one of his activities that is characteristic of God. So kind of like if I just uh, if I didn't have a word for fire. So I just called it hot stuff. I just started calling it hot stuff, right? It doesn't mean that's not what the nature is, but it's just a particular activity or energy that is associated with fire. It's very characteristic of fire. Of course, fire also gives off light and it destroys things. So it has other energies, but being hot is maybe something that I just particularly associate with it. So I just talk about the hot stuff and I, it's just my word for fire because I don't have a word for fire. And he says, we don't have a word for what God is. So we just use that word theos. And it's, mm-hmm. he says, it's really just one of God's activities that we associate specifically with. Him. He thinks it's, it has to do with God being able to see things, beholding things. I think he gets that because he did kind of a deep dive on the book of Genesis but anyway, whether that's really accurate uh, etymologically or whatever or not, um, the point is just he thinks it's a certain kind of activity. And so he says there, so in the same way that I could say there's just one buyer, 
So I'm the buyer, my realtor's the buyer. I'm not my realtor. There's two, those are two different people, but there's only one buyer and that's me, right? I wouldn't say the buyer, you know, in an ultimate sort of sense, like refers to the realtor, but I would say you can call her the buyer because, and she did do the buying after all. I mean, she's the one that signed everything. So it's not false. It's just language works in funny ways. Sometimes yeah, yeah. Right? Sometimes language works in, in unexpected ways. This is a kind of a pet peeve I have with a lot of analytic philosophy that deals with the Trinity is analytic philosophers have tended, I think, to want to take a very simplistic view about how language works. And then they come in with like crazy metaphysics to try to make the Trinity thing whole, all work, right? Yeah. And what I want to say is like, there's not a there's some there's some metaphysics going on but there's not a ton of like really just crazy off the wall metaphysics but you have to think more deeply about how we actually use language and there's a there's a saying in the in the Jewish Talmud that I like where they say uh, the Torah speaks in the language of men meaning not to try to hold the Torah to the you know like it's not going to be written like a math textbook or something in this, you know, super precise way that that analytic philosophers might like or something. It, you know, it speaks yeah. in an ordinary human level, right? And ordinary human language is very rich and it's very complex. And sometimes it's kind of surprising the weird things that we do with language. Uh, and this is one of those things when we're dealing with issues of agency and one person doing an action on behalf of another, but it counts as that person's action. We talk this yeah, way. We, yeah, we yeah. say, I'm the buyer, she's the buyer, but there's only one buyer. Uh, the, the analogy that you uh, gave to Lewis at Orthodox Shahada, for instance, was, mm -hmm. which I, so ever since I've heard, I'm just using it for, I don't know how many yeah. times I already used it. It was like the, the example of the allegory of, uh, like this room, for instance, needs to be painted, and yeah. uh, three guys. I, yeah. I hire them to come in to paint everything. One brings everything upstairs. The other one paints mm -hmm. it. The other one collects everything and uh, cleans everything up. Like uh, it's one act, one goal, one mission as a free speech. Uh, mm -hmm. There's one transaction I'm giving, but all of them have participated in that one action. The only yeah. reason why this allegory is not waterproof. If that you somewhat would imply that the Holy Spirit does the stars, the sun does the earth, the, the Father does something else, and that's not that's something right, that, that would be wrong. Yeah, that yeah. would be wrong. For instance, our our position is that all of them participate in this one act. Yeah. Would you, would you agree with that? It's it's your allegory. So, but would you elaborate yeah, more on that yeah. point? Yeah. Yeah. Now, so yeah, so if you had three ordinary human painters, right, they would have to split it up and one paint one room while one's doing the other or, or whatever. Um, and part, part of the reason I, I use that analogy in my dissertation um, to talk about the way that we count when we use agent nouns, with nouns that have to do not with what kind of thing you are, like a cow or a human or whatever, but what you do, like a painter or a philosopher or speaker or whatever. So um, we do seem to count 
the actions, not the things that are doing the actions. So, um, so yeah, with people, you would have, if you had three painters, they would have to be painting different rooms or painting different parts of the wall. So they'd be doing three distinct token actions. Um, but yeah, with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they'll be doing just one act, right? Um, so an analogy that I give is like, suppose you could have three men that, uh, that weren't limited by space and had to, you know, stand in different places, but suppose they could all just be co-located. So somehow they could step inside each other and just be in the same place at the same time. Uh, then, you know, all three of them would be picking up the same paintbrush and putting the same paint on the wall at the same time, right? And the ironic thing is that would take them three times as long then to, to paint the to paint three rooms, right? Instead of instead of splitting the things up and painting three rooms uh, and just but, one but day. Then, but then you're equating time again with God. That would take long. Well, but but my point, my my point with, with that analogy is that if if someone asked me, um, so suppose you're, you you have a general contractor right, who, who contracts out painters, and you say, hey, I really need three painters, because I only have one day to get all three rooms painted, so I need to hire three painters so they can paint these three rooms, you know, each one is going to be an all-day job, and I say, sure, no problem, I can give you three painters. Well, if I gave you three painters who stood inside each other right, and could only do the same action at the same time, then you'd be screwed. You'd, you'd right, you'd be that thinking- would, That you wouldn't could be worth the money. <laughs> right, well, and I would, so first of all, it would take three times as long, mm -hmm. um, three times longer than you thought. And suppose I charged you, uh, I said, you know, I'll, I'll charge you a, whatever, $20 per man hour of work. And it's uh, 10 hours, 10 man hours per room. And so you're thinking, okay, well, I've got three rooms, 10 man hours of work. So that's 30 man hours altogether. Let's see, 20 bucks per man hour. So that's going to be like $600. Okay, I, I can pay $600. Well, <clears throat> if I have these guys do it, all three of the, each one of them, will be doing every single bit of work. So each one of them will end up doing 30 man hours of work. <clears throat> so now you have to pay me $1,800. So you have to pay me three times as much for a job that's going to take three times as long. You would say that I lied to you, <laughs> right? You, you would say I've been, I've been deceived because <clears throat> you told me there were three painters And so I thought that I was going to get this done in one day and just have to pay $600. But now it took three times as long and I had to pay three times as much. That's clearly deceiving and misleading me. And that's part of what Gregory thinks about the doctrine of the Trinity is he thinks like to say that there are three gods would be super misleading because it sounds like It, it, to say there are three gods does sound like, well, the Holy Spirit's going to create the stars, and then the Son is going to create the earth, and then the Father's going to put some stuff over here, and they're all, you know, divvying up jobs. And like in the Greek 
you know, myths. You, you can have gods disagreeing with each other and they may, they have wars with each other. And all of these like social Trinitarians who deny this doctrine of inseparable operations, they all get into this problem where they have to say like, how is it that you ensure that the persons all agree with each other? And they all come up with kind of different answers. But, but the point is like, you shouldn't even have to have that, that question, right? I mean, they, they end up saying things like Swinburne and, and Hasker and others will say, um, well, because the persons are all omnibenevolent, like they wouldn't, you know, get into an argument. They just kind of agree on things or something like that. But, but the problem is like, I mean, suppose the persons are all omnibenevolent, but suppose the Holy Spirit's favorite color is green and then the son's favorite color is blue and the father's favorite color is red. And they're like, hey, what color should we make the sky? Like, well, I like red, but I like blue. Well, I like green. Well, I mean, maybe they come up with some compromise, but not everyone's will got done. So it doesn't seem like they're omnipotent in the sense that, you know, whatever you will, you can accomplish. I mean, it's like, well, I have this will, but I need to go check with these other two guys because, you know, I don't want to overstep my bounds. I mean, that really does seem like three gods. Yeah, but that would also equate the fact that it would, it would be in uh, three is a good number for democracy. Like you need to have uh, yeah, there's, the, the there's majority. To, yeah. But what if you have red, blue, and green, right? Then mm. what? What do you, well, you got three options. There's no tie-breaking vote, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, another thing too, by the way, I mean, I'll just, throw, as long as we're on the topic, I'll throw this out there that there are... Um, I mean, people study this sort of thing in like decision theory and, and like voting paradoxes, whatever. There actually are these kind of like voting paradoxes and paradoxes with um, decision theory where like you, you can have cases. There's no way to resolve something, um, even if you're trying to. So like there's a funny... Um, this is offensive to Canadian uh, listeners. But anyway, sometimes people talk about a Canadian standoff because... I don't know if you know, but it, anyway, in America, Canadians have this reputation for being super polite and nice and whatever. So a, a Canadian standoff is when like two people get to a door, you know, you can't both go through at once. And one person is like, you, please, you go first. And it was like, no, no, you go first. It's like, oh no. Okay. But no, you, you know, and, and like everyone's trying to coordinate, but there's no way to resolve the, so even if, even if you're, omnibenevolent and you you want no conflict and whatever there there are cases where there's no decision procedure that'll that'll resolve the issue even if everyone's yeah. trying to that's a that's a great point yeah yeah so it's yeah i think it's just super super problematic and a lot of people a lot of social yeah. trinitarians don't they, they, they would be drowning in their uh benevolence like they would yeah. be so yeah. kind to each other that nothing would be accomplished yeah but would you then say that uh, uh, that it is out of the question that mm. there is a potential for Christ, for instance, to have said, "For no, 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 I didn't want to be crucified," or mm. or some type of rebellion? Like a, a great example no, I mean, no. we use yeah, is that's, yeah, it's yeah, Second Chronicles thirty verse twelve. For he gave Israel uh, mm. a mind; they gave him one mind. All the, na the nation of Israel. Yeah. If mm -hmm. God can give that to a nation, yeah. how would you actually put that type of way of thinking towards God? Like he has one yeah. will, yeah, and but it, it does have a threeness, but it doesn't necessarily needs to say that they're 
in some type of way like uh, Christ rebelled against the father for like yeah at, at, uh, mm-hmm. at the last meal he said like uh, do not let this cup uh, get to me or why hast thou forsaken me all done. these type of things like yeah. when people look at those passages for instance they're like oh this poor guy he didn't even want to do this but that's the whole thing so, yeah. yeah no I don't yeah I wouldn't I wouldn't read the the Bible in that way um so yeah no you I I don't think um and, and that's that also is part of what comes up in in some of the fourth century controversies is like would it have been because if Christ is a creature um then it, I mean it does seem like um you would you would have this possibility that he could have just said no well i mean you kind of have a dilemma right it's it's if he doesn't have the divine will um then if he's just kind of got his human will or whatever if he's an angel or whatever arians think right a created will either he just doesn't have free will right so he's going to the cross but it's caused something i mean god's just sort of commandeering him you know forcing him to do it it's it's not really free will or you know is there a possibility that he could have failed in his mission and said like well you know now that we come right down to it i don't really want to go to the cross after all right um or he could could he have sinned right so uh and then you know not uh i mean then, then he would have come under all the same curses in the of the law and so forth as everyone uh, and he wouldn't he would require redemption uh, so oops I better send somebody else um so you know neither neither of those seems to be a great option right um, but if you say well he has a human will and a divine will uh and it's just that you know, within that right the human will submits to the divine will um uh, but he's only one person, right? So, I mean, he he can only make one choice, right? But the, the divine will can't make the wrong choice, right? Um, well, yeah, then, I mean, it's free will. It's his will, right? I mean, God, um, un- unless you just think God doesn't have free will, which some people do because, because God can't sin. But uh, if you think, well, it's just that God essentially... It desires the good right so it's not that it's not like he doesn't have the power to or something but it's just that he uh his his will is necessarily directed towards the good um if you think god counts as having free will and if, if you just think well so the son of god has that same divine will then yeah he has free will um and just and freely chip but but he couldn't have not chosen it because the divine will is ordered towards the good just necessarily what would you um understand from uh, the indwelling of the persons or also known as perichoresis which john of damascus put what would you Mm -hmm. understand on that particular term yeah i think a lot of i mean a lot of stuff's been written about perichoresis that um uh, I, I don't think has been super helpful, but to me, um, at least when I read the church fathers, I guess I'll say two things. I mean, so one is, yeah, the term 
doesn't really start to get used uh, in a Trinitarian context until John of Damascus uh, himself. So, um, which, you know, would have been nice if, uh, if there was more sort of material on it. But mm-hmm. it seems to me that it's just meant as a, yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, actually, <laughs> your collection. Right here, I got the... Yeah. Um, I take it to in a pretty simplistic way, which which is just kind of, um, and may, maybe this, maybe you have to take this metaphorically, but um, uh, I, t- I take it to be just kind of like the painter analogy I gave, like spatial, co- like being in the same place at the same time, doing the same things at the same time. So if you can imagine to... Um, I don't know what, like, you know, some yellow liquid and um, some blue liquid just getting, you know, so thoroughly blended up that it's just like, there's no point in space that doesn't contain a little bit of both. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, you know, if you ever have looked at those fractals, like imagine, you know, a checkerboard and then just put inside each, space a smaller checkerboard you know and it just yeah, kind yeah. of goes on infinitely yeah, f- fractal yeah yeah, yeah 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 exactly like a fractal so if you kind of imagine something like that like a fractal of just black and white squares right so no matter how far you zoom in no matter how small you go still there's small. always going to be both black and white at smaller sort of levels right so think about things being like physical things being so thoroughly blended that there's no, no matter how small, you know, down you go, there's always little elements of both in there, right? Um, so there's no space where there's one, but not another, right? They're just sort of thoroughly blended. Um, that's not like a perfect analogy for the Trinity. So the Trinities are, they're not, you know, physical things and we're not, they're not really, um, uh, you know, yellow and green liquid or something like that. Mm-hmm. But, but the point is that, you know, that, that's a good analogy for how the, the persons of the Trinity being pure spirit, so not physical material things, are not separated by space, right? They don't have to go in different places. Whereas uh, most of the church fathers seem to have thought that every created thing is uh, even angels and everything in some way um, has a kind of material or spatial aspect to it. So think about like even angels, like in the book of Daniel, right? Um, The angel says, I had to fly really fast to get from Persia to here, you know? So like it's physically limited to some extent, Mm -hmm. right? Spatially limited. So the, the persons of the Trinity, when I, when I talk about interpenetrating, and by the way, if you do understand it in that way, I would argue that even though the word doesn't pop up until, um, so the word gets used by Gregory Nazianzen in the context of Christology, it starts to get used in the Trinity with John of Damascus, but I would argue that the idea uh, goes all the way back to Irenaeus. Um, so mm-hmm. Irenaeus talks about um, it's kind of a weird thing where it's Justin Martyr um, kind of seems to conceive of the father and the son as being in different places. So like the, it's kind of the way he distinguishes them. But um, 
which is kind of weird. But anyway, Irenaeus is pretty clear that he just sort of says, because the father and the son are both spirit, they're both, they can both be everywhere. Um, they don't have to be physically separated or anything. So even as far back as Irenaeus in the second century, you get this idea that being purely spirit, the persons of the Trinity can be in the same place at the same time, and they don't have to be separated um, in the way that creatures do. That's that's a solid ex that's a solid explication and, of perichoresis. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, another thing I'll say too that uh, I've only just recently kind of gotten into looking at this, but people in the ancient world thought about numbers and counting in a very different way from, from how we do. So the way people today will argue that the persons of the Trinity are three gods or something like this is to say, well, the father, son, and Holy spirit are not identical because the father begets and the son doesn't and vice versa. So, um, so they're two, they're two different things, right? And each one is a God. And so they're two gods. In antiquity, the way people thought about counting was not in terms of identity, but in terms of division or divisibility. Mm. Uh, and they did think of it in very sort of spatial terms, like being physically separate. So, um, so Aristotle says that, um, uh, and, and honestly, I mean, the, where he's getting this from probably goes back like to the Babylonians and the Egyptians. I mean, they, you know, who, who thought of things in kind of the same ways, but um, where I'm not an expert though. But, but anyway, at least with Aristotle, right, he, he says that quantity number is um, just sort of divisible quantity. So he, he talks about two different senses of quantity. There's continuous quantity, things like length and breadth and height, um, where there's no division, there's no spatial separation, right? Like a, like a line, there's no division in a line. So it's continuous. And that is what he calls magnitude. So you have magnitudes of, of various degrees or whatever. And then number, he says, is divisible quantity. That's multitude. So uh, number is when you have uh, things that are discrete and they're literally physically separate. So think about the way that we teach, you know, kids to count. We'd say we give them four apples or something, and we'd, they, they'd all be physically discrete, separate things. We say these are four because they're separate. Right. So this this is a separate thing from this. Um, if they if they share and the way he defines the difference is whether they share a common boundary, they share something in common. Right. So a, a line, whatever point you want to draw on it, like this part of the line and this part of the line share this point. And so it's continuous. But two separate lines would be something where there's a space in between. Right. And that's how they say counting works. That's how they think of counting. This, a way that this, you might think, well, who cares? But the, a way that this comes up today as a puzzle for philosophers, um, there's a puzzle about the lump in the statue. So like, a, a, suppose you have a statue that's made out of a lump of clay. So the lump of clay existed on Monday, but the statue didn't exist yet. 
But then on Tuesday, I form it into a statue. So now a statue has come into being. And then let's say on Wednesday, I smash it back down and it's just a lump of clay again. So the lump of clay has the property of existing from Monday to Wednesday. The statue has the property of only existing on Tuesday, right? So they have different properties. They came into existence at different times. They went out of existence at different times. So by the identity criterion, right, they're not identical because they have different properties. But would you say that there's two physical objects there on Tuesday in the same place at the same time? Mm. Or would you say there's just one physical object and it's a statue and it's a lump of clay if it's, you know, it's, but it's just one thing. So the way that people think about number today really gives you the result. You should have to say that those are two distinct objects, right? But your intuition tells you there's only one, right? Because that's really how in, in two, and, and ancients and medievals would say that's because we count by divisibility. Whether, whether things are one is determined by whether they're separate or whether they're not. So we call that one thing because the lump of the clay and the statue are not divisible. You, you couldn't separate the lump and put it over here and separate the statue and put it over there. Mm -hmm. So they're indivisible, so they're one. And in, when we talk about the Trinity in, in some of the liturgical prayers in the church, talks about the Trinity, one in essence and undivided, right? The undivided Trinity. And a lot of times people look at the one in essence because they're familiar with that's supposed to be important, homoousius, right? They're one essence, but they just kind of pass over the undivided like that's not important. It's just sort of verbiage or something. But actually, I want to say that's very important that the Trinity is undivided. And that ties into this issue of perichoresis, that because the persons of the Trinity are all three omnipresent, right? They are undivided. They're indivisible. Uh, you can't, one can't exist without the other, right? Even though the father's the source, like we talked about earlier, you can't have a father without a son and you can't have a son without a father. So they're, they're in the same place. They exist at the same time in every possible world and so forth. And there's no separating them. If that's how you count, then that means they are one, not that they're identical, but that they're, that they're one. Mm. In fact, the phrase, you know, we have the, the phrase, sometimes people will say that X and Y are one in the same. We'll say Mark Twain and Samuel Clemens are one in the same, right? And in English, anyway, that's just a, a pleonasm, we call it. Like, it's just, you're just saying the same thing over kind of just a wordy way of saying they're identical or something. But for Aristotle, Aristotle is the source of that expression for him he would say that because those were two different things for him, right? Whether they're one is one question, whether they're the same is a different question. Um, so he has a famous passage, kind of funny passage where he talks about Socrates and seated Socrates. <laughs> and he argues that Socrates and Socrates seated are one, but not the same. Because Socrates existed before, just like the lump in the statue, Socrates exists, and then the seated Socrates comes into being, but seated Socrates will cease to exist when he stands up. 
So he says they're one, but they're not the same. Um, and likewise with the persons of the Trinity, you can say that they're one, even if they're not the same. Yeah, but because the, the, we've changed the way we think about that today, people think that's just contradictory, but the, the problem yeah. is it's just a different way of thinking. It's, that's a great point. And what would then be your answer on what exactly the is distinctness uh, in health, and, mm. uh, particularly spirit, yeah, yeah. speaking the idiomat and the hypostatic properties, because right. there is Yeah, this, so this is a good, this is a... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, I, I, I mentioned the idiomata or the hypostatic properties earlier and forgot to come back to that. So this is a good time to come back to that. So um, this is an important distinction too that gets that there's a lot of confusion, I think, among some analytic philosophers about this. So, so in one sense of the term essential property um, and a, a sense that philosophers use a lot, it's just a property that you have in every possible world. So or in every possible world in which you exist, right? So um, presumably you could not have been like a shark or uh, a bottle of water or something, right? That wouldn't be you if it was, if it was a bottle of water, right? So um, you are a human presumably in every world in which you exist uh, at all. So that's, that's essential to you. So that's one sense of the term essential properties that you couldn't exist without that property. But there are other senses that, uh, of the term that get sometimes not clearly distinguished. So um, sometimes like when Aristotle talks about something's essence, um, he means the kind of thing, the species that you belong to. So in that sense, an Aristotelian essence, like you and I would both have humanity as our Aristotelian essence. It's a lowest level species. So we're, you know, animals and you can go down through mammals and primates and whatever, and you get to human being, that's the species. So that's Aristotelian essence, a kind essence. Um, there's also what, in modern philosophy or contemporary philosophy, people sometimes call an individual essence, which would be some properties that you as an individual have to have in every possible world, but other human beings don't, right? So maybe that would be something like having the particular parents that you had. Uh, maybe you couldn't have been born to different parents. That would just be somebody else or something. Um, I mean, people argue about what counts here, but that might be an example. So, um, so, you know, you have a, that, that idea of an individual essence. So like a particular property that, that picks you out. So uh, you have that property in every possible world in which you exist. Um, and the only thing that has that property in any possible world is you. So that property kind of lets us identify you in different hypothetical situations, right? Mm. That's your individual essence. That's what the church fathers refer to as an idioma or the sometimes people call it a hypostatic property. So that's the, the particular property that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the case of the Trinity, have. They, they each have an idioma. Uh, and then the usia is the kind essence, 
roughly that they that they have. So both of those are essential in that broader sense that you're going to have that property in every possible world where you exist. So in every possible world where you exist, you have humanity, which is your kind essence, and then you have whatever your individual essential properties are, right? So you have your usia and you have your idioma or your hypostatic yeah. property, right? So what confuses people, sometimes people will say, oh, well, you know, if you've got this, uh, you know, eternal generation and eternal spiration and all that, well, the father has essential properties that the son doesn't. And so they wouldn't be homoousius. They wouldn't have the same divine nature, whatever. The, the confusion there is that um, it's true that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have different essential properties in that really broad sense of just different properties that they would have in, in different possible worlds, right? But uh, the, the different essential properties that they have are those hypostatic properties that are individual to them. And when we say that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are homoousius, we're talking about the usia, which is the kind essence, right? So again, just like you and I share um, the human nature, uh, which is an essence. So those are, we both have humanity as an essential property. Well, you and I have different essential properties in that broad sense that, you know, you have your same parents in every possible world. I have my same parents in every possible world, maybe. Um, but that doesn't mean that we're not both human. <laughs> Right. So we, the, the way that we have different essential properties is because we have different hypostatic properties, but we have the same usia, which is humanity. Right? And same thing with the persons of the Trinity. Right. So the father has the property of begetting um, in every possible world in which he exists, which is all of them. Uh, and so that's essential to him, but it's essential to him because it's his hypostatic property. Um, and the son has the property of being begotten and not of begetting. Um, so same thing, that's essential to him, but that's his hypostatic property. Um, but they still have the same usia. So things like omniscience and omnipotence and omnibenevolence and those sorts of things, those are issues, those are matters of the, the usia, the kind essence, which is common to both of them. Mm. I think I, I, there's a little no. bit of freezing on the video. I hope I'm not freezing too. But no, you're you're uh, you're not freezing. Hopefully, that the internet is doing. Uh, oh, I see that the internet's a bit on the low side. That's weird. But yeah, um, yeah, because it, it, it somewhat goes. Uh, I don't know how long we're talking already. Like, I'm going to try to wrap it up in a couple of minutes. Sure. But one of the interesting thinks is that we go somewhat into the the doctrine of the filioque when you when we give the hypostatic oh, property yeah. of the that what actually the father has like uh mm -hmm. procession of no excuse me uh eternal generation be the, be, the mm -hmm. beginning of the son if we give that right. same idiomata to the son that uh proceed out of him proceeds the holy spirit then you make the father and the son equal to each other because of the same hypostatic property yeah because but then um yeah, well, then we go, of course, into the monarchy of the father, which we addressed many times already, yeah. which we could do also. But I think all the way throughout our session, it's it's uh, we we addressed it. It's there. Yeah, yeah, it's there. But, but yeah, a big 
a, a big issue with the filioque is that in the Cappadocians metaphysics anyway, you only have uh, the ustia, which is shareable, and then these hypostatic properties that are not shareable. Uh, and so for that system, um, the filioque just doesn't work, right? So if, if the spiration of the spirit is the father's hypostatic property, then the son just can't have that because then they would literally just be identical. The son just would be the father. Yeah, um, that would somewhat imply that uh, the Holy Spirit is the grandson of the father, like in the world. Yeah, or yeah, speaking, or maybe yeah. the grandson. Or if you say that the father generates the spirit or, or spirits the spirit because of the divine nature, well, then not only would the son do that, but the spirit would spirate himself, right? Which wouldn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, so th there's no way to make it work within that system. The, there are ways to make it. Um, I mean, you, you could probably maybe anyway, make it coherent, but you have to kind of adopt a different metaphysics or you have to say, in, in particular, what you have to do is you have to say there's something more than just the divine nature that is shared equally between the three persons and more than just these hypostatic properties that are simple and unshareable which Gregory of Nyssa specifically says, quote, they are simple and unshareable. <laughs> That's exactly how he describes them. So you'd have to say there's some other kind of thing yeah. there that is shareable that the father shares with the son, but that they don't share with the spirit. Yeah, like the, the Cappadocians. And that, and that seems worrying, right? I mean, it seems problematic. Like, yeah. uh, but, but I remember that you one time said, and Elvis also read it in the Cappadocian Fathers, uh, that it was revealed to us. That was like their go-to. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, their go-to uh, argument for, or mainly against the filioque, because there's a distinction, because the son is the only begotten son. That's right. And yeah. emphasis on only. And right. there's also procession. So what those right. things actually are, this is the world of um, apophaticism. Like there is so much out there. Yeah. That, yeah. Like, and also one thing that's uh, a real uh, argument for the Trinity is uh, the, the fact that we, with our noetic way of thinking as human beings, uh, that there is so much that we don't know. Like, when uh, John Stuart Mill or David Hume and when the empiricist way of looking at data uh, became like the, the anthropocentric way of looking at the world, like we humans, we are the center of the world until we see it and perceive it, then we perceive it as true. But that in and of itself is actually like a heresy. I, I hope everyone who, who listens to this understands because we human beings, for instance, we have the hearing from 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz. You as a magician and as an engineer, right. you yeah. know that, yeah. yeah. But dogs, for instance, they can listen up to a couple of thousand hertz more and bats even further than that. What do I imply with that? Because with the limited perceptual uh, ways of the senses that we have and the way we interact in this world, there are realms out there that we are not able to touch. 
There are animals that can see with infrared. There are things out there, like Paul, for instance, says that there are there's the spiritual realm, there's the demonic realm, there's so much out there that just God knows what it actually is. So what would you think uh, when people say like, oh, the Trinitarians are using their mystery card to, to bail out of mm -hmm. it? Like, what would you yeah. say to that type of thing? Good. So, and I, I talk about that in my dissertation a little bit. So one thing I think is that people misread the Cappadocians on that point. Um, so some people uh, seem to think that they just say like, well, everything's a mystery. You know, you can't really understand anything. Like they just kind of throw up their hands and say, everything's mysterious. But actually, if you read them carefully, they're very precise about specifically what they think is, is mysterious. Um, they say that what the divine nature is, is a mystery. So we can't give a definition of God's essence in terms of like genus and species or something like you can't, you can't define what God is. Uh, they, now they're clear. We can know lots of things about God. We can know, uh, and we can know a lot of things about the divine energies. So we can know that God is good, that he created the world, right? We know all the things God does, but what it is that's doing that is a black box, right? So we don't know what the divine nature is. And they say that specifically, uh, how the generation of the sun and the, the spiration of the spirit work, like what exactly that is other than just some kind of, I mean, here again, they'll say there's things we can know about it. It's in some sense, we can call the father a cause, although not in the physical sense, like we talked about earlier, we can say there's some kind of sort of priority relation of some sort there. Um, or grounding, I mean, whatever you want to call it, but there's a, you know, there's an order of some, in some sense. Uh, and we know that it's something where the father and son have the same nature. They have the same intrinsic nature. How does it work? Um, how does that have to do with time or whatever? You know, I mean, there, there's stuff about that that's, that's mysterious, but everything else, I mean, there's, there's nothing else really that they say is just a mystery. I mean, they don't they don't say that it's mysterious how uh, it can be the case that the Father, Son and Holy Spirit are each God, but there's only one God. I mean, they say I mean, they have answers. They say, well, here's how. Right. Here's it's, there's perichoresis. There's synergy. Here's how, you know, depending on uh, what angle the person's coming at it from, they say, here's here's the response. Um, the, the only things really that they say are mysterious are what the divine nature is and and the generation relation. And the, the reason that those in particular are important is Eunomius, who was an extreme Aryan, right? He claimed that he could literally define the divine nature. And he said- I, I sent it to you the screenshot, remember? Yeah, I mean, you sent me that screen. We, we were talking about that earlier about how uh, full of prelists uh, do you have to be to, to be Eunomius. And I mean, he, I mean, I mean, because think about it, like, you, you can't even really define human nature precisely. Like we know what humans are, but like we're still studying the human mind and human culture and things like, you know, we, we don't know exactly how, you know. Yeah. And, and the, the more we know, the more we realize we don't know. 
Yeah, the more we, yeah, exactly. The, the more we know, the more we realize that we don't know. Um, but Eunomius thought that he knew exactly what God's essence was, and it, it's just aseity. Not only that, if, if I excuse me when I interrupt you, not only that, he also mentions that even God doesn't know his own essence just as the way we better be any better than I do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. like yeah 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 no, that's actually right i mean he he said yeah he, even god doesn't know his own nature any better than but, you know me does yeah, but, but when, because it's just aseity right that was his view yeah and so so you know me said use that to argue that the son and spirit didn't have the divine nature because they weren't absolutely ase in in every sense the cappadocian response to that was to say aseity is is a hypostatic property um, and and then to say what the uh, what the divine nature in itself exactly is is a mystery. We know the divine energies, and we know the hypostatic properties. We know that God has this kind essence, but we don't know what it is. We just only know God through the energies. Yeah. So that's why it was important for them to say that the nature is is a mystery. But it's not like they're just saying, oh, the whole doctrine is just yeah. a big mess or something that's that's never was never their their intent yeah what what, what really is fascinating to see because many anti-trinitarians from whatever walks of life they think like um the church fathers like are my enemy and the friends of the enemies of mine are my friends they think really think that particular way but then i would introduce them yeah. to you know me and things like the things he said and i'm like are you agreeing with that or wouldn't you agree with the church yeah. fathers so wouldn't you agree with yeah. also with the fact that church fathers were in as humanly integrated as they could as much as they loved the doctrines as they loved the, their faith as they came up for their faith like going into modern don't you think that they were just really intentionally wrestling with it that this wasn't something that it was like a whim or oh, yeah. ever an everyday job like they really underestimate church fathers, and I, yeah, I, 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 I held I held more value to their opinion than today's Christian theologians. Friends, mm. I do respect them, and of course, the church fathers are also humans. But with the thing that we mentioned before, uh, chew out the meat, spit out the bone. Don't throw the baby without the bathwater. Yeah, like yeah. when there's a particular thing the church father says, which is very helpful, and sometimes the, the same church father says something that could be like very questionable. But doesn't yeah. necessarily negate the fact what the message is, and right. that's a very important. Thing. Yeah, no, that I think that's right. I mean, the church fathers are not infallible, but they they certainly are a, a authoritative guide to you know to in in a number of ways. I mean, number one, of course, they were just much closer in time, right? So things had had less time to change, right? So whatever the church fathers saying, I mean. You know, it's a pretty good, uh, pretty good bet that that's going to be closer to the original than what we what we have today. And also, um, you have to keep in mind. I mean, the church fathers were, I mean, in some cases, they they had um, a kind of education. I mean, the ones who were educated anyway had had a kind of education that you can hardly imagine today in today's world. I mean, if I think about people like Maximus the Confessor or John of Damascus, who like, uh, the, the, I mean, you can't even hardly imagine getting this sort of education that they, that they had. And uh, all of the church fathers, whether they had a good education or not, um, 
were intensely involved in studying the scripture. I mean, you know, they, they would be, um, I mean, monastics even today, right? Else. They want to do anything else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there are people, you know, there, there are church fathers who read the Psalms every week, um, read the new test. Some, some people that read the new Testament through every week, um, they would, you know, be reading the, um, I mean, who was St. Mark, the ascetic, you know, that had the Bible memorized like the entire Bible, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just, so these people are like in, intensely, intensely studying scripture. And you have to think too, I mean, for those, you know, if you're talking about like the Greek fathers and they're, they're reading the Greek of the new Testament and the Septuagint in their native language, that's, you know, I mean, I, I can sit there and, and translate it, you know, for myself, but like, I don't, I, I don't sit down and just read Greek like I read the newspaper or something, you know, it, it's yeah, yeah, um, yeah. so that so there, there's yeah, for people who are sort of um, skeptical, I mean, um, there's there's a lot of reason why I think even if you're like a sola scriptura Protestant or whatever, like I, I think you should give the church fathers a chance and and oh, yeah. you might be surprised what you what you find. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I really don't want to do go into denominational chauvinism. Like, mm. uh, you can be very proud to be like a nationalist from this country, but there you go can go up to chauvinism, which is like you feel yeah. better than the others. Like, it's it's good to have in-house conversations, but uh, how would you? Well, deal thing, with let me let me say one thing too, though. I think this is important. I mean, not to. Uh, to to badmouth uh, anyone or whatever but but do think about it like um think about why you or how you can trust the the new testament and trust the bible itself right i mean presumably you think that the church fathers who preserved the bible were generally reliable people and generally intelligent and generally sincere and did a relatively good job. Or, uh, you know, if you think that they're just sort of incompetent or that they weren't sincere, why would you think that they were reliable to transmit the Bible to you and to get the canon of scripture? So that, that's one of the things that, um, I mean, yeah, I, I won't, you know, I won't, I won't go into uh, polemics uh, or anything, but but I would just say, I mean, think about it, right? Like you, you think that you can trust the church fathers uh, as far as their canon of scripture that they've preserved for you. Yeah. So at least, you know, you, you can give them a shot and see what they have to say when it comes to the doctrine that they. Yeah. But I, I, you know, I, do, they interpret. I do have one question which pops up in my mind. Uh, a body of my heart is he was, um, as a bitter of an atheist as you could possibly imagine, but uh, a couple of years ago he came to Christ, mm-hmm. and he is really like open. But he, uh, there's no but. He he's choosing for sola scriptura, and mm-hmm. he one time asked me like in contrast to orthodoxy, like when the church fathers were like discussing, refuting, etc. Were they using a certain type of uh, sola scriptura esque way of refuting? Mm-hmm. What would you answer to that type of thing, to that uh, well, statement? I, I will say this. I mean, there's, um, 
So people mean different things by sola scriptura, and some people make these distinctions between like sola and solo scriptura and different things. But um, I mean, so in some sense, the the scripture is is the ultimate foundation of of everything in the faith, right? So, um, and I don't think anyone would would or should anyway de- deny that. Uh, but the the question, of course, is always how do you understand it? Um, because every every heretic that has ever come along has said that they affirm the scriptures, right? They just interpret them in some wonky way, right? Um, so that that's really the the question. I I mean, one reason, um, like, so in the Orthodox Church, I mean, we believe in the uh, the assumption of Mary, like there, there's a, you know, the, at the feast of the Dormition of the Theotokos, like there's all these hymns and everything. I and mean, it's very clear that, that there's this belief that Mary was bodily assumed into heaven and whatever. Roman Catholics have made that a dogma. It's an infallibly proclaimed, you know, day fee day, like this is absolutely required. That's never happened in orthodoxy and probably never will because it's not in the Bible. It's something that we believe. And, and the reality is like everyone believes that. I mean, it's there in the hymns of the church and everything. But um, it's, not gonna, it's not in the scripture. And so it's not, a requi- it's not a dogmatic, like you have to believe this thing or whatever, right? So there is a certain sense in which, yeah, I mean, everything that's going to be like dogmatically defined needs to be, needs to have a foundation in scripture somewhere. But the the issue is that, I mean, we have a certain interpretation of scripture, right? And it, the, the question is always going to be, how do you rightly interpret it? Um, so, uh yeah. yeah. And I mean, there's, I think the, the analogy you gave earlier of like, you know, spinoffs, it's actually how I kind of think about this sometimes. Like I think about in, in Star Wars, like people who are big fans of Star Wars, there's kind of this, these concentric circles of like canonicity, right? So it's like the movies are absolute infallible canon, right? And then like the screenplays are you know, if they contradict the movies, then you have to go with the movies, but they're like pretty authoritative. And then there's like authorized uh, like novelizations and there's certain like, you know, cartoons or whatever that are less central, mm-hmm. you know, and, and as you it, kind it, of go it, it, out. It will rarely be as popular as the movie itself, but it will not, it mm-hmm. wouldn't mean that it has less significant truth to tell. Yeah, there, there's some uh, there's some authority to it, and there's some some truth yeah, to like, it. Like like what, what I, for instance, uh, the brother Jay Dyer, for instance, he is an Orthodox, mm-hmm. but he is. Uh, wait, I better show it, then I can see it. Because the interesting thing about uh, his way of doing apologetics, he is. Uh, doing presuppositional apologetics, he's oh, using yeah, yeah, yeah. Ventil's way of. Oh right, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but yeah. that's an, another fascinating thing. He is an Orthodox, but that doesn't necessarily mm. say from like, oh, I use the Bible on a rarely, a particularly lower level. That's not the whole thing. You'll see 
Orthodox people that are so zealous with their Bible that it just boggles your yeah. mind. And the whole thing about Van Til's uh, presuppositional apologetics is that when there is an objective truth, there is this way that you can rationally uh, use uh, a circle, circle redenering in Dutch, which just means that mm. if, if the Bible is... Yeah, the, the pinnacle truth. And when Protestants hear it, they're like, yeah, yeah that's what, exactly what I mean. So it doesn't necessarily say that um, the, the Bibles are any less authoritative or whatsoever. What would you comment on that? Right. Yeah, yeah no, I, I agree with that. I mean, that was one one thing I kind of struggled with moving from Protestantism to Orthodoxy was, was the role of the Bible and the church fathers and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, I mean... I, what I mean, what I was told was very clearly like, yeah, the, the Bible is fundamental. Uh, if, if a church father contradicts the Bible, you go with the Bible. <laughs> but um, I mean, hope, hopefully they don't. And, and, you know, and like, like I said, I mean, none of the church fathers is infallible. Um, uh, but that doesn't mean they're not valuable or something right i mean like that's that's still the the tradition and that's really i mean i would argue that's the biblical pattern that's that's given to us too i mean paul is very clearly says to timothy like you know i taught you you teach other faithful men who will pass it down you know and and so on Mm. um that's that's how things worked in judaism (laughs) that's how things looks like they're supposed to work in Christianity that, you know, it's, there is a tradition. There's an apostolic succession. Yeah. 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 Then uh, I would like one last question, then we'll wrap it up. Uh, I see that we have one question left. If we pray slash worship to one person of the Trinity, are we negating Mm -hmm. the other two? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, um, in a word, no. <laughs> I don't think so. so here again, think about like um, if someone sits down with my realtor and um, signs a bunch of documents, right, um, with my realtor uh, at a real estate closing, are they excluding me um, from the real estate deal? Um, no. The way, I mean, if I can't be there, uh, or if I'm just for whatever reason, I'm not there and I send this agent who's, you know, acting in my, my, in my name, um, that is the way that you interact with me is through interacting with her. Right. So, um, you know, the, the new Testament is very clear. No one has ever seen God. Um, that's, that's what it tells us. Right. Um, no one has ever seen God, but it says the son of God has revealed him, right? So we can't, um, and this ties into the theophanies issue in the old Testament, right? There's all these times in the old Testament where it says people saw God and they talked to God. Who is that? It's not the father because Jesus says no one's ever seen the father, right? No one has ever seen the father. So who are they talking about? Who did they see? They, they saw Christ before his incarnation, right? He appeared. The angel of the Lord. In, yeah, the angel of the Lord. And that was what he was and is, right? He's the angel of the Lord. And that that is how you worship the Father is through the Son, right? That is how we pray to the Father is through the Son. We, we ask things in Jesus' name, We, right? So 
uh, it's it's not a, an exclusion. One one way um, um, one way I, I uh, an analogy I give here. I don't know how it. Um, I don't know if there's an equivalent uh, to this uh, in other countries or what. But in in the U.S., we have the Pledge of Allegiance. We have this. Uh, so you know they'll put the American flag up and you say. Uh, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, right? Um, but it's not as though there's two different things that I'm uh, pledging allegiance to separately or something, right? right? It's I, the way that I, I mean, I, a country is this abstract sort of thing and it's, it's really big and I can't like, I can't salute the country but I can salute the flag <laughs> and I can pledge allegiance to the flag. I can kiss a flag, I, you know? Um, so that's the way that I, you know, do these things to my country that I show respect to the country is by doing some act of respect to the flag because the flag represents the country. It's the same thing we believe about icons, right? It's the reason that we, I kiss an icon to, show respect to the saint that is is depicted in it and the bible tells us yeah paul. there we go there you go. <laughs> oh nice and the bible tells us that, that christ is the icon of god right he's he's the icon of the invisible god uh, the father is invisible christ is visible so he's our visible tangible way so when we uh, when we worship Christ, we are worshiping the Father. How do you worship the Father? By worshiping Christ, right? So there's, uh, and as far as the Holy Spirit, how do you do that? Well, you do that through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, right? So um, sometimes people think it's weird that you don't, uh, there's not more like prayers to the Holy Spirit. But of course, ideally, the Holy Spirit is praying through you. <laughs> Right. right. If, if you are praying in the Holy Spirit, you when you say the prayers in the church, right, the Holy Spirit is supposed to be yeah. acting through you, flowing through you. So um, it's the Holy Spirit is praying through you and you are praying to the Father through the Son. So all all three of the persons are wow. are involved and you're not there, there's no one's excluded. In fact, the very simple, like the Jesus prayer, uh, oh Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. People will say that that simple prayer is an invocation of the Trinity. And why is that? Well, because you say, Lord Jesus Christ, so that's the Son, uh, Son of God, meaning the Father, mm -hmm. Son of, right? And no one can call Jesus Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Right. So it's when you say, yeah, 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 yeah. right. You call Jesus Lord, you are invoking the Holy Spirit, not in a direct sort of way, like not at the Holy Spirit, but you are uh, yeah, yeah. becoming, uh, I don't want to say a channel, but the Holy no, Spirit. Yeah, yeah. First Corinthians 12, 3, that only by the Holy Spirit you can call Christ Lord. So yeah. it is, it is the Holy right. Spirit who could touch the hearts. So the, the Holy yeah, Trinity yeah, becomes yeah. invoked there just in that. That was some meat. <laughs> yeah, this whole session was like, yeah. I really sense that they, we could like have <laughs> yeah. uh, spend off like on so many different Yeah, you subjects. can talk about this stuff for, yeah. 
after days. Yeah, God, God willing that uh, those days will come. So yeah, um, Dr. Branson, this was phenomenal, phenomenal stuff. I have great. We did we did exactly what we should do, which was which was philosophizing, which was loving, loving the the the, the wisdom in all these doctrines, and yeah, it just encourages so many Christians in such a way, and hopefully this podcast will like like becoming a ripple effect for people to understand more because in certain sense, you can uh, defend the Trinity in a biblical way, which is like almost obligatory. Like you cannot without the Bible, but another mm-hmm. way, like on the historical side and also the philosophical side, because people who don't want to go to the Bible, who uh, because they'll know that on one hand, they'll be slapped by verses that talk about the plurality. And on the other hand, they will talk about the divinity. So like, pick your poison because they know they mm. want to, don't want to go to the Bible. Then they go to the philosophical side. And we really see like an mm. evolution of, of uh, objections against it. But it's amazing to see that the church fathers were right all along. And mm. that there, there, there is so much cohesiveness that you are like wrestling with these deep type yeah. of topics. And yeah, with, with people who will just wrestle with these type of topics, topics for years and years and years and look at the books behind you like uh, yeah in, in a very compacted uh, understandable everyday type of thinking like if you could like explicate the trinity that's a, that's a win in, in this day and age so nothing but gratitude and thanking the lord for your energy for your time Thank- yeah. yeah, thank you for the opportunity. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, it was uh, my pleasure. My pleasure. You're an absolute hero of mine. It's fun for me to talk to about. Too, so. Yeah. Uh, God willing, we will give... Uh, oh, there uh, the internet's just breaking down. Great, great time to, for the internet to break down. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> at least we're done with the with conversation now. It's gonna fizzle yeah. out. So, but it was great done. talking to you. I appreciate it. So, I'm I'm uh, I'm humbled, and uh, you're absolute hero of mine. I said it again, and hopefully, when the Lord puts it on my heart to address a certain topic or to go dive deeper into particular interesting things, like I really would like to talk more about uh, orthodoxy and in, in contrast to uh other world religions for instance and but that would be this all future uh, future music um then dr branson what can i say i wish you the very best of this next coming semester the next coming year the next coming life whatever the lord has in store for you i wish you nothing but the best uh health for you and your family may you be flooded with the love of christ and thank you for your wisdom thank you for loving what you do you too you too i appreciate it yeah all right have a great day everybody bye